You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. The musical heartbeat of the 50s, the birth of an era, a whole generation having fun and looking for love. It's Lemon Popsicle. You haven't told me your name. Benji. And you're? Nikki. Nikki? Nikki. Ricky? Nikki. Keep your mind on your drive and keep your hands on the wheel. Keep your snoopy eyes on the road ahead. We're having fun. This is the Featuring on the soundtrack, 25 great songs by 22 of the original hit artists. Don't miss the year's most entertaining and appealing film, Lemon Popsicle, Certificate X. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. Also joining us this week is Mr. Orrin Shy. Hey there. This week we are discussing Lemon Popsicle. Released in 1978, the film was a massive hit in Israel, Germany, Japan, and elsewhere, spawning eight official sequels, one kind of unofficial one, and an American remake. The film stars Ikhva Katsur as Benzi, one of three friends growing up at the heart of the film. Lemon Popsicle tells the tale of their adventures growing up in the 50s in a world of rock and roll where the most important thing is having fun and getting laid. Heather, when was the first time you saw Lemon Popsicle, and what did you think? First time I saw Lemon Popsicle was actually over the weekend. I had heard about it for years because uh, I'd, I'd studied uh, The Last American Virgin. So I was definitely, I went into it kind of wondering like how the two were going to compare and contrast because I knew that Last American Virgin was basically a, a remake updated to the 80s. And what I found was an absolutely heartbreaking but 
I hate using the word heartwarming. It sounds so <laughs> sounds so cliche, but it really just a really touching and I think honest film um, about coming of age. I, I was a little leery at first about like I was wondering how the 1950s like music and setup were going to be for it because most American films. Uh, set in the 50s that are post-50s can be very nostalgic and be very based in that. And I was very, very happy to see that Lemon Popsicle was, you know, it's just a very honest, honest movie. I loved it. Now, how about you, Orrin? When was the first time you saw the first one? It's a little hard for me to pinpoint uh, the first time I saw Lemon Popsicle. It's almost a rite of passage when you're in Israel. I feel like I have always seen Lemon Popsicle. Lemon Popsicle, I feel like I've known since I was born. It's a cult movie before I even knew what cult movies were. I, I kind of feel like you always know uh, quotes from the movie. Always, it's, 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 it's huge in Israel. Everybody knows it. So I can't quite say when I first saw it. I'm assuming it was when I was sometime in elementary school. But because everybody quotes that film anyway and anyhow, and you can hear quotes on TV or in movies or, or it's – so embedded in popular culture, I feel like I've heard quotes from the movie even before I've ever seen the movie. That's interesting. Is this like, you know, these aren't the droids you're looking for? Is it that kind of embedded thing where everybody would get the reference when you're making it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was born I was born three years after the first Lone Popsicle came out. So, you know, it had some time to uh, to grow and and to become this cult film. Uh, which which I think happened pretty pretty quickly, but uh, totally, it's it's a movie that uh, it's it's a little hard for me to tell with um, kids growing up today because I'm not really in, in tune, I guess, with that demographic. But uh, you know, up until a few years ago, I can tell you for sure that every every generation knows Lemon Popsicle. Now, are you watching these on what cable? Are you going to the show? Are they showing on TV? How is this? How are you seeing these movies? When I was a kid in the 80s, we only had one real TV channel in Israel. It was before uh, before cable came in. We used to get like uh, sort of cable from Lebanon and from uh, Saudi Arabia and like seeing a lot of cartoons in those channels. But as far as Israeli channels, we only had one. Uh, it's possible that they played in that channel. Uh, most likely, I took a lot of them on VHS. I definitely remember some of them on VHS. I remember the fourth one, uh, Private Popsicle on VHS. Um so it's it's most likely at a video store. Or there was, a, at some point, we also had like illegal cable, like sort of pirate cable. I think it's very possible they played it as well. Now, Heather, can you think of kind of like, uh, other than the remake, can you think of something that, for folks who aren't familiar with Lemon Popsicle, this might be kind of akin to for U.S. folks? For U.S. folks, um, I guess with the timeline and sort of the coming of, coming of age plot, probably something like... Um, American Graffiti, but kind of like if American Graffiti, or maybe, you know, I hate comparing to Porky's. It's so much smarter than Porky's, <laughs> but it's got it's got some of the irreverent teenage sexuality humor of, say, like, you know, of a Porky's, but it has more of the, I think, like, serious, just the pains of growing up of American Graffiti. So I guess if those two films had a baby... Uh, lemon popsicle is still better than that, but you get where you. I think that would be maybe the closest comparison. I don't know. What do you think, Mike? People tend to forget just how dark Porky's can get at sometimes, and Fast Times at Richmond High. How dark that one can get at sometimes. I mean, there is some darkness to American Graffiti, but it, not 
that much. I mean, not until the end credits when they're talking about people being killed in Vietnam. You know, for the most part, they keep it pretty light. The thing that gets me about uh, Lemon Popsicle is just how real it feels. And, I mean, it makes sense. It was based very much on the writer-director's own story. And it just has that verisimilitude as far as not everything turns out happy. The whole movie is told as a series of vignettes, and most of the vignettes don't necessarily end with uh, a happy ending. I mean, they keep it rather lighthearted most of the time. Like, when the kids get crabs and stuff, they it's kind of treated as a joke. And when they... Um, end up uh, finding a, a really sexy, alluring older woman that, that they go with. Two of the guys get laid. One of them doesn't. The boyfriend comes home. So it's kind of like a typical teenage sex comedy thing. But at the same time, it's there's a little bit more of a bite to it. So, uh, And then as the movie goes on, it gets more and more serious, especially that last 15 minutes. It's just like, wow, okay, I did not expect this movie to go into this territory. Oh, God. I know it completely it's, – it's one of – both this one and Last American are just – that last 15 minutes just always – it just it wrecks me a little bit emotionally. I mean, I love it for it, but I've, I've been thinking often on all day today about, like, what is the difference between these films and, say, like, you know, Fast Times, American Graffiti, and I think you nailed it because to me there's there's a rawness and there's an honesty. And, I mean, those are two films that are good. I'm not, you know, knocking either one of them, but to me – there's always something that felt to me a little bit put upon a little bit with American Graffiti. It's, it felt, even with the darkness, it still felt like it was more nostalgic than completely inherently honest about being a teenager, you know, then or now. And with Fast Times, I mean, the origin of that is basically based on a book that Cameron Crowe wrote where he impersonated a teenager, whereas, you know, with these films, you know, Boaz Davidson, and I hope I'm saying his name right, <laughs> Oren, please correct me too, because I will screw up a pronunciation undoubtedly. So. It sounded good. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thank you. But, you know, the fact that he did base it on his actual childhood experiences um, just lends it just some beautiful, beautiful, true gravitas. I think honesty and, and Heather, you you said honest, like that it's honest. That, that was one of the first things you said, and I think uh, honesty is the key uh, with Lemon Popsicle and and with the magic of that film because it is uh, it is very much uh, a personal film to Boas, who uh, basically it's autobiogra- autobiographical for him. It's it's what it's all experiences that he went through in Israel when he was growing up, and not only that. It's filmed in pretty much the same locations, like the ice cream parlor, Montana, when they, where they all, uh, you know, party and like socialize. That was a real place. And, and that was, that actually still existed up until a couple of years ago. That was a real place where these things happened back in the day. So he wasn't just recounting his personal story. He was doing it where it actually happened. That's also one of the differences for me with Last American Virgin, where I feel like uh, it's not as personal in terms of, you know, it really is an Americanized, it's very American, like Amer- he Americanized uh, his life story in a way that, that took some of it away for me uh, personally, but also I, I grew up with the original. But also with, with the honesty, uh, and Mike, a part of what you were saying, for example, about the uh, the older Romanian woman that they come, you know, where they come into our house and, and they all uh, 
uh, sleep with her. She seduces them. One of the things about Lemon Popsicle that I find so unique and so interesting, and it was definitely unique in the cinematic landscape in Israel at the time, is that it really portrays, like it was made in the 1970s, and in 1970, the late 70s was a period where Israel really started to get uh, Americanized in the sense that uh, American culture came, you know, we like they started open, opening uh, shopping malls. The, the culture started like embedding in American culture much more than before. Uh, definitely by the time I, I grew up, it was, it was very much so. And, and Lemon Popsicle tells about a period in the 50s where things were not Americanized yet, but there was a longing for America. And that's actually something uh, when we interviewed Boaz once, he said, it's, it's not about Americanization. It's about longing for America, longing for the United States, longing for that culture. And when you watch that film, one of the things that it's that's so interesting to me is the difference between the life that the young people, that the teenagers want to lead, which is the rock and roll lifestyle versus home. You know, after they after they all socialize and they dance to like the latest, you know, whatever Little Richard tune, they go home and it's still like the immigrant parents, the the immigrant Polish parents, or even the hot, uh, you know, the, the older Romanian lady who with Stella, she's an immigrant. It's all these characters that can only exist in Israel of that of that period and of that time. You know, they're selling ice on the street because there's no. Uh, you know, you need to put ice in the fridge in order for the fridge to work. I mean, it's, it's, it's old Israel versus new Israel. And, and it really shows you that clash, which I find very, very interesting. We never really get, as far as I know, we don't really get, um, Udale or, or Momo's parents, but we definitely get Benji's or Benzi's parents. And we get a couple scenes of, well, I think in the first one, we, we get at least one scene of him coming home. And yeah, it's nice to see that contrast between what he was out doing, the way that the youth was out partying and the way that he's just getting absolutely smashed, uh, trying to, um, allay some of his pain from, uh, seeing this girl that he likes dancing and, and going out with uh, one of his best friends. But yeah, it's, it's neat to see him come home and to see all the old people that are sitting around and, and uh, the way that they're socializing versus the way that he's socializing. Also as an Israeli phenomena, there's really no American expression, like American English expression that I can find for it, but they used to, and you can see that in the film uh, in the 19, you know, 1950s, 1960s, the way that a lot of these teens socialized was in house parties. And every Saturday night, they would go to somebody's house and just play the latest records. They called themselves like living room groups or whatever, something like that. It doesn't sound as good in English. But that you can see that in the film. So even like the, the process of them wanting to be America or wanting to be American graffiti is very much, uh, very much shows what the teenagers of that era in Israel were desiring. You know, versus which was not necessarily the reality of the time. When you brought up the music, and the music is so important to these films, especially in this first one. I mean, it just starts with a song and just goes all the way through. And you see Benzi with his transistor radio and just having it on all the time. I mean, I, I wasn't really catching the first time that this was diegetic music. I was thinking that it was just over the soundtrack. But then his mother several times is like, would you turn off the radio? What are you doing bringing the radio out here on the, the balcony while you guys are 
polishing your shoes, you know, just like get rid of the radio already, except for one very crucial scene. I mean, you have music throughout this entire film, whether it's right on the soundtrack, whether it's, you know, diegetically coming from his radio, from the record players, or from hearing it out on the streets, you can hear the rock and roll kind of permeating through society, through other people's transistor radios through you know other places that they go there's always music in the air it is a little confusing with the diegetic because sometimes it's not you don't really have like you know a sound effect or like uh it's not it's not tuned to sound like it's coming from a transistor radio i i think it changes throughout the film it just becomes kind of like a carpet of music and and sometimes it is more like diegetic sometimes it's non-diegetic like but it's it's it goes in between it can be a little confusing yeah, for for sure, and it's very it's it's almost a character in the movie. I mean, it's very literal a lot of times. Well, even when they're at the Romanian woman's house, I noticed her coming out. Uh, sex session takes enough uh, as far as one side of a record, and when she's done with one guy, comes out and has to turn the record over, and then go back in for the her next round with the the next boy. She her character is one of the probably biggest. I would put her in the top three uh, biggest cult characters in Israeli cinema of all time. That's without a doubt. Well, I can see her definitely um, being an influence on many a young man. Briefly going back to the music, though, though, though we will have to return to Miss Stella, uh, certainly. <laughs> she is a vision. The thing that I really was impressed with, with, about was how precisely used each song was, because I think sometimes when you see films that have this many known songs, one after another, like top 40, top 50 hit. Half the time, you're it's almost going to just sound like somebody threw on a various artist compilation and set the film to it, and it doesn't make sense. Whereas, you know, the thing that impressed me was that every, it just felt like every single song was like just perfectly used. Like if you had a, a funny, whimsical scene, you'd hear Witch Doctor. And then if you had something more poignant, it'd be like Puppy Love or Mr. Lonely. I just, I love it. I'm a sucker for a great soundtrack. And when music's used in sync with a moving image, it's one of the most, could be one of the most powerful things uh, for me, at least with cinema. One of the things I noticed today, I accidentally put on the dubbed version of the first movie versus the subtitled version of the film. And I noticed, I'm, I'm watching it and I'm like, oh shoot, this is the dubbed version. And I made it up until, you know, it starts off at a soda shop, right? And um, when Neely, the, the new girl, comes into um, the soda shop, the music changes. And so I'm like, okay, let me change the movie. And I put on the other version, I'm watching that, and I'm like, these are different soundtracks. The dubbed version actually has a completely different soundtrack than the uh, subtitled version. I mean, I don't know if it's completely different 100% of the way through, but it definitely wasn't Dion and the Belmonts being played in one version when it was in the other. And I was just like, oh, okay. I, I imagine it was a rights thing, but then at the same time, it's also easier to just lay down a whole new track of music and cover everything up, you know? <laughs> so, and... Uh, Heather, I was wondering, maybe for the rest of this episode, could you just talk in some of the voices of the women from these films? Because the dubbing of the women's voices is just amazing. Oh, well, actually, going back to Stella, <laughs> the dubbed version of Stella sounded completely batshit. I mean, it's like, I, I mean, she sounded, because <laughs> she's already like such a crazy, colorful character, just this like 
I don't, you know, this like sex pot cartoon. And, but the voice they gave her was just all like, come in, boys. I don't know. That was a horrible person. But it's just like her voice is weirdly high pitched. And then when, when she starts having sex with them and she's shrieking and shrill and it's kind of scary because it's like, you know, if you didn't know anything about this film, you're like, somebody's going to get killed or something. This woman's insane. Like, and then it's like, no, she's just, okay, she's just an infamaniac. <laughs> Stella, it's only me from this morning. I brought the ice. There you are, Bambino Caro. It is lovely to see you. I, uh, I brought my friends along. We were in the, in the, in the neighborhood. <laughs> ah, so your friends are my little ice men. Oh, sweet. Come in, handsome man. <sighs> the dubbing for uh, Stella was definitely um, uh, questionable, but entertaining. It's interesting. I, I'll, uh, I'll I'll just say about the music because uh, you know, Lemon Popsicle was a, at the end of the day a fairly low budget film. From what I understand, I don't completely understand how uh, how this happened and 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 the the mechanics of it. But the music was not easy to get, and they somehow managed to license all this music from like sub publishers or something like that across Europe. They had a guy who went around and just found like found, you know, one piece of music here, one piece of music there. And, and uh, somehow they managed to get everything. And I think that when the movie was uh, released abroad, then they needed to change a lot of stuff for the English sub for the English uh, soundtrack. So that, that is, uh, there was a, a licensing thing for sure. I mean, the use of Mr. Lonely in this film, I mean, they use it the, the two times, and both times it just rips the heart out of you. So I can't imagine any other song in its place, but I, I, I don't know if they had to use something in one version, version versus another. Heather, did you watch, you watch the dub version of this? I did, and um, Mr. Lonely was most definitely there. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a real, real heartstring puller. The ending of that movie really traumatized me as a kid. I mean, the, this film influenced me uh, more than probably anything. And and the ending of it really, really affected me. But talking about the soundtrack, even the beginning, opening the film with that sort of like melancholic title sequence with Greenfields, you know, the Brothers Four, Greenfields on top, it's so melancholic. Like it starts, it doesn't just end sad, it starts sad. For I mean, for me, at least when I when I watch it, it's just, it's so... It's like a memory of yesterday. You can feel how melancholic the movie is when it when it begins just by the use of Greenfields. No, I totally agree. I have to say that I wasn't really familiar with that song. Pretty much everything else on the soundtrack, I'm like, okay, yeah, I know this one, you know, especially uh, Happy Go Lucky Me and what's the, the song about um, driving in the front seat with uh, Fred right, yeah. and uh, some of those songs are just incredible. And so if you Seven hear them once, you're always going to remember them. Yes, thank you. That was so good. <laughs> but yeah, that opening song I wasn't really familiar with. And so I, I kind of felt like I had missed out on something. But I will agree that it it is very melancholy and it does a great job of setting the mood because you would think that they would open with something like, you know, a, a Little Richard song or something that, that's really hopping. But no, they start very slow and then kind of take you down into it and then let the movie wash over you after that. And they introduce you to these guys. So we've talked a little bit about Benzie and we haven't talked too much about you, uh, Dale and Momo. I love you, Dale. And of course, he kind of becomes the star of the show as these movies go on. He really comes to the fore, especially with a lot of the comedy and everything. And Zaki Noy was just kind of built for comedy, it seems like. 
And him with that little book, I love his little book where he keeps a notation of everything that he spends every time he lends one of these guys money. And really the first time that we hear him talking, he's talking about how much money these guys owe him. You know, Benzie owes him like $5.13 and um, Momo owes him, oh, a whole lot more than that, at least $9, which in 1950s money is pretty darn good. So when it hits, you know, later on in the film, when we get to talking about $170 for something else in the movie, it's like, wow, no, that's, that's a whole lot of cash at this particular point in history. Yeah, that's really funny. Tzachi is, is a great, he's a fantastic actor and he's really great with comedy. Um, I think he also has so much soul. And, and I actually think that for his character, for uh, Yudale, his, he, he really shines in the second film in Going Steady, uh, where he has, a whole sequence, uh, a whole se- he's got his only really, really emotional scene where he gets very hurt and he opens up about being sort of like the fat guy and being the joke and how he knows everybody's making fun of him. And it's, uh, it's really heartbreaking. The thing I, I really loved about is, is it, okay, it's not you, Dale. Is it, how, how is it, how is oh. his character's name? Well, okay. So it's basically a nickname of uh, the, 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 Hebrew, the proper name is uh, Yuda, Yehuda, uh-huh. and the the nickname is Yudale. <laughs> and the, yeah, inexplicably, in the dubbed version, that would be Huey, that yeah. which makes no sense. <laughs> but um, uh, but no, Yudale. The thing I loved is that there's these little touches too, where he's kind of almost like quietly protective of Benzie. You know, like the whole thing when Benzie shows up, you know, to the Montana looking for Nilly and, you know, and he's like, oh, I think they just went on a walk, you know, and then Victor <laughs> or Froggy. I had to look. <laughs> oh, let me, let me just, let me just foike. <laughs> okay. Um, foike? Yeah. I just kept calling him the Shermanator. The sh- <laughs> <laughs> the, the shirt <laughs> that's I, that caught me off guard i like that mike <laughs> but yeah when he he basically feels like oh yeah you know she you know she and um the one who's not bobby see this is the bitch about watching the dubbed version <laughs> <laughs> no the one who is bobby momo momo so momo and neely have, have run off and he basically you know, reveals uh, to Benzie that they've gone off to go make it. And, you know, Udale just, you know, as soon as, like, Benzie walks off, Udale just slaps the crap out of him. And it's just, and the way that he did it, the look on his face, I'm like, man, this is such a good actor. Because usually that kind of role in typically in 70s and 80s teen films, like kind of the, the more portly guy, is almost half the time just like a bad fat joke. It's a throwaway. And there's never really a lot of emotional gravitas given to that kind of character. And the fact that you really, you know, that he's likable and sort of, you know, sort of protective of his buddy. I mean, certainly more so than um, than Momo is, who's basically kind of a character looking out for number one when it comes down to it. Yeah, Momo seems to be absolutely clueless that Benzie has feelings for Neely. Just and and maybe if he ever does glean that, I just don't think he cares. He is a friend to Benzie, but not nearly the friend that Udale is. He 
as you said, Heather, he does seem to be just looking out for number one. He seems to be all about having fun. He's the guy, when they have these situations, he's always the guy who gets laid first. You know, he's the one in there with uh, the Romanian woman first. You know, he always gets his, and then who cares if anybody else gets theirs? Yeah. Well, and, and notably, the only exception would be uh, the hooker, where poor, where poor Benzie is basically sort of the sacrificial lamb to that god that <laughs> yeah that is the worst <laughs> service provider i would give her such a low review on the arrows guide i mean i it's just she is not good she is not all about service oh my god I, I, that's the kind of scene when you first see it i think especially like uh like if you're an american over 30 and grew up watching a lot of american like tna kind of teen films you know the 80s the usually hookers are they're real sexy and they're real friendly they're real good time girls and so when you first see this one or you know last american virgin because that hooker seems about equally as nasty um you're just like holy shit like this is dark this is real this is the real you know like there's there's no punches being pulled here and um poor benzy though god you just your your heart breaks for him so much throughout this film and just you know seeing him just when he throws up you know, just think about it and just i i feel like there's an implication that that's basically him losing his virginity because anytime like they're with some like because he never makes it with stella like he he basically kind of almost pushes his two buddies on the forefront. So I I don't know if that's the case. I kind of wondered if if basically him he lost his virginity to the hooker. I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, I don't think it's technically losing your virginity from an HJ. So I think it's that whole like Catholic thing. Like you can do so much other than you know the one deed that which counts as losing your virginity. I think the idea is that it just it's just cut in a very quick way, but I think he he has sex with her. Oh, he does. Yeah, okay. yeah that that was the impression. I mean, he got crabs, so Right. He, okay, I was wondering about that cuz I was like, how did he get crabs from a hand job? <laughs> no, they just the, the cutting time is a little is a little strange because the music keeps going and there's no cutting music and basically like it goes from the hand job and then it cuts to uh Momo and Yudele watching, and then it cuts back, and they're done with the sex. But you see him get up, like he was laying on top of her. So it's so. So I think uh, the implication is that they did uh, have sex. And I figured it was pretty darn quick because that announcement of like, okay, who's next, seemed to come right away. God. She's, a, she's a professional. I, I was just thinking about it when uh, when you mentioned uh, Yudele being uh, being a good friend. There's a scene it, talking about the difference between Lemon Popsicle and uh, and Last American Virgin. There's a scene um, in Lemon Popsicle where I think it's the first house party and Bensie goes and he sees Neely comes to the party with Momo after he tried to get her to the party and she said no. Uh, and he gets really upset and he gets drunk. He gets wasted. And he ends up leaving and Yudale goes with him and they have this like heart to heart outside, and then Yudale kind of wants to, uh, you know, walk him. And Bensi said, "No, it's fine. I'll just walk. You know, I'm, I'm fine by myself." And he walks home drunk, right? Which, which is a really nice like heart to heart scene. The the American version in, in Last American uh, Last American Virgin, he gets into his car and drives home <laughs> drunk, and like. And the guy just goes, I don't remember their names in Less American Virgin, but the, uh, the Udale of Less American Virgin says, 
uh, he's kind of like, are you sure you're okay to drive? Are you sure you're okay to drive? And he's wasted. And he just, uh, and he just lets him drive. <laughs> now in like 2017, after Mad and all of the, the public service announcements, you're just like, oh, God, I was just cringing when he got in that car. Oh, God. I know. It's because I, I recently rewatched Last American Virgin. Like, I watched it basically after I watched Lemon Popsicle almost back to back, you know, because I've seen Last American Virgin several times. It had been a probably about like a few years. You're right, Warren. I, I, that scene in Lemon Popsicle is so sweet. And you can understand, you know, somebody being like, okay, you're walking, you're on foot, you're going to be okay. Yeah. And then I watched, you know, <laughs> the American Virgin where he's like basically giving him the keys. <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> and, mirac- and miraculously, the, uh, the Benzi character in that film, which is Gary, does make it home safe by the grace of God. <laughs> Because yeah, he is—he's been chugging Jack Daniels pretty, uh, pretty consecutively at that party. So, speaking of Last American Virgin, I, did, did you—is is that a movie that you guys saw a long time ago? Like, did you know about it? Is it like, uh, like when were you first? When did you first become aware of Last American Virgin? I remember the box cover. It wasn't for some reason like I remember. Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and I remember seeing that with a bunch of high school friends, probably when I was like a freshman in high school, you know, on VHS, right? So, but Porky's, I remember more just the one scene from Porky's, the peeping scene from Porky's, and when that um, the the one woman grabs the guy's penis, that's all I really remember from Porky's, and it really wasn't until just a few years ago I watched it for the first time. And then Last American Virgin, I just kind of remember the video box cover, and I remember it being out there, but I don't remember it playing on cable. It really wasn't until I started doing research for this episode that I watched it for the first time, and I was really kind of taken aback watching it just because it does share so much with Lemon Popsicle and it does have the same downer that Lemon Popsicle had. I wasn't surprised when I hadn't really heard of it that much because I was like, wow, this must have really been a killer for kids back in the 80s to see this thing. But at the same time, I feel like audiences might have been a little bit more mature because I kept comparing it and lemon popsicle to things like uh, American Pie, and I was like, "Oh yeah, American Pie is there's a little bit of darkness here and there, but for the most part, it is just like, hey, let's get laid, and that seems to be about it." Growing up, you know, my initial memory of it was the same: was seeing like the box cover. In fact, I can still kind of see it in my mind's eye because I remember it said, you know, featuring like something like featuring the hits of Blondie, the Cars, and all of that, um, which was pretty popular. Back, you know, in the in the eighties to kind of you know throw that and um, the way that film was promoted made it kind of seem like it was just another you know frivolous wacky new wave soundtrack teens getting laid wacky hijinks ensue kind of film and I and so I didn't really seek it out until I was an adult uh, because I grew up watching a number of other really horrible <laughs> teenage TNA eighties comedies as a as a child um, who had access to cable TV. <laughs> And it would sneak up late at night when uh, my mom was asleep and be like, oh, what's on USA or, you know, whatever. And it wasn't until I was an adult and I'd read um, 
I'd read a piece on it and the writer, and I wish I can remember the article and the writer's name. It's been, this was back in like the mid two thousands, um, talked about just like what a surprisingly kind of darn, like downer of a film it was. And I, I mentioned it to my husband and he, he had seen it um, on cable back in the nineties and he was like, no, it's really good. Yeah. It's definitely not like your average. And so I rented it. It was completely floored by how, really good it was and definitely how unique and just um because you know something like fast times which may be the easiest thing to compare it to an american like early 80s american kind of teenage high school coming of age films um fast times always never hit the spot for me like i mean there's parts of it that are really good spicoli's funny um anytime that film tried to get serious it didn't feel real to me like the way the, the the way abortion is handled in that film almost felt a little just you know it's like oh that's oh shit oh, okay she's fine you know it didn't seem like you know it seemed like anything serious that film just didn't carry a lot of weight and it just felt uneven which may be partially because of Cameron Crowe who's the director who I think is talented but I think he's not always the best at handling anything that's real serious give him just a, a comedy a lighthearted comedy he'll be fine give him something where it's like hey we got groupies or you know teenage abortion and it's like oh shit please don't let him handle this like <laughs> But, um, you know, but this film, I was like, no, this is, you know, it just hits such a deep spot. And I, I've, I'm drawn to films because there's very few films, in my opinion, uh, that are kind of coming of age like that, that really have that honesty about, you know, kind of, yeah, growing up can be fun and, you know, you have fun times, but can, there's also a lot of angst and growing pains and um so I thought I thought it was great. I thought the cast were really really great. You know, for me, it, and it's interesting. Um, I was wondering because I'm I grew up uh, in Israel. Again, grew up with with the Lemon Popsicle films. Uh, I've seen all of them, knew all of them. Um, had a very good film education. Definitely in high school, I went to like a film high school. So like I've I've seen all you know the American. Teen, teen movies of the 80s. I've seen, you know, all the John Hughes movies, whether it's like, I mean, Porky's is Canadian, but Porky's, like, I've had a pretty good, pretty well-rounded film education, and around, I was visiting New York, I don't remember around what year, I picked up a book called uh, Pretty in Pink, The Golden Age of Teenage Movies by Jonathan Bernstein, and it's, uh, it's sort of like a rundown of, uh, you know, teen movies from the 80s, and I'm reading the book and I'm going through it. And then I get to, an, to a chapter about Last American Virgin, having no idea what it is. And it describes the plot. And I'm reading it and I'm like, wait, this is, wait, this is Lemon Popsicle. This makes no sense. Uh, and then I found out that it was remade and I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked that this film was remade. And that really started me kind of going deeper into the success of that film and what happened with it because nobody like nobody knew in Israel that there was a remake I, I most people that I even told afterwards and no one had any clue which is funny because just last week with the run of the arrow episode after we were done recording one of my co-hosts said oh I had no idea that last American virgin was a remake of anything else and I'm like oh okay so it's the same uh, either side of the pond we think we own the original you know <laughs> <laughs> where you guys really do. Yes. So, which is the important thing. 
But how was that for you, that first experience of seeing Last American Virgin? Because it's not just Lemon Popsicle. It actually takes some bits from the sequels as well and kind of mashes them together into Last American Virgin. Yeah, it, uh, it does. It has, uh, like, the main storyline is from the first Lemon Popsicle, but then it takes, like, different gags from Going Steady, uh, the second one. Uh, it's a weird experience. It is. It still is a weird experience. Yeah, like I, I, even now, if I, you know, I looked at clips and and I looked at parts from Last American Virgin, it is very strange for me to to see that because I feel such ownership over the over the original Lemon Popsicle. It's one of those movies that you you kind of feel like it's yours. That seeing it in a in a different language with different actors is is bizarre. It it still is really really bizarre. I can appreciate it as. Again, I mean, it's, I don't feel, I feel like it's not as good of a movie, um, for the simple fact that it's just not as personal because he's done it already. He's telling the same story again. You know, it's the eighties. He kind of tried to make it, they, they tried to make it a little more commercial for the American audience. So it's, I, I don't, f- I think it's a very unique film in, in the landscape of American films, definitely teenage movies in that era and that period, but I don't, uh, for me, it's not as good of a movie as, as Lemon Popsicle, essentially. We were talking about Udelay before, and just, uh, Heather, you brought up that Zaki Noy does not play the typical fat friend. You know, and we have the fat friend as one of the tropes of so many of these teen comedies, and the fat friend usually doesn't care as much as the other people, or maybe he just cares and he has real, no real intelligence behind him. And that's the thing that so many, well, so many fat characters in general are just usually played for laughs and for being dumb. There seems to be kind of this, this thing where if you're overweight, you can't necessarily be very intelligent, where I think Udelay has the intelligence and has the emotional weight behind him as well. And that's really kind of what sets him apart for me from other fat friends. And I would say even from the fat friend in Last American Virgin, I think he seems to be more like, hey, let's get laid. But no, like, you know, the, he doesn't have the same emotional resonance that a Udelay has. So I do think... Uh- which Udelay in Last American, as I look at my notes here, <laughs> is David. David is still given a little more than I would, than, yeah, but now, I mean, there's, yeah, it's kind of hard to compare, you know, yeah, Udelay just is a, is a really smart, I mean, just like all the characters in the film, just like such a smart character and a fascinating guy. And I, I cannot, I can't imagine anybody else playing that role. That actor nails it. Yeah. Both, both him and, um, just, I don't know, that main cast, just so good, so tight. I love that the guy who played him uh, ended up being in another film uh, called Hot Chili, which almost seems like it's a, <laughs> almost seems like a ripoff of a Lemon Popsicle kind of, uh, like a sequel for Lemon Popsicle. It was directed by William Sachs, and wouldn't you know, it was co-written by Menachem Golan. <laughs> And uh, it's a a group of – I'm reading the IMDb uh, Tribune here, and it says, A group of American teenage boys go south of the border to work for the summer at a Mexican resort. There they encounter many wacky guests and have many zany adventures. Canon also did uh, (laughs) Hot Resort. I guess this is a different hot movie. Yeah, I think so. They had all roads lead to Golan and Globus. Because Lemon Popsicle, if we if we go down, I mean, we, we we haven't even gotten into that, but if we go down the line, Lemon Popsicle 7 is a resort comedy. And 
those resort comedies, it's really funny because they were actually, there was a sort of like a subgenre of the Israeli comedy that happened in resorts. And they were, the resort would essentially uh, finance a good part of the movie, I think. Uh, and you just make a comedy there. Uh, they were just called resort comedies. So I guess they, they made them here as well. Oh, yeah, they sure did. I mean, I'm thinking of, uh, well, the Flamingo Kid, but Heather, wasn't there one with um, like some of the SCTV guys and maybe even Robin Williams in it? I know. Oh, Club Paradise. Club, Club Paradise. Paradise. Okay. I being Club. That's uh, Howard Ramis, right? Yeah. Yeah, so we had uh, a few of our uh, resort comedies as well, but uh, not enough to, I think, uh, have a whole subgenre dedicated to Although, them. let me tell you, Club Paradise, which is Robin Williams and Jimmy Cliff, which is kind of cool, is one of the only Hollywood movies I've ever seen. Uh, this is very trivial. That uses uh, music by Mighty Sparrow, who's one of the probably the greatest Calypsonian who ever lived. Oh wow! Uh, so that made me very excited as a Calypso fan. I don't know too many people that would would say I'm a Calypso fan. So just hearing that makes me happy. Oh God, it's amazing! <laughs> I actually now want to see it. You have sold me on Club Paradise. <laughs> don't raise your anticipations too much, but you know it's interesting. So the thing we've been kind of dancing around with this whole episode, and I didn't give spoiler alert at the beginning, but if you've come this far with us, let me just say spoiler alerts right here, because we are going to talk about the end of the film. Because so much of Lemon Popsicle and Last American Virgin are these kind of you know wacky adventures and kids trying to get laid and kids just kind of making it through their lives you know whatever kind of adventures that they get into like hitting the uh, parking brake while they're making out at the beach and the car goes in the water these kind of things you know they're they're funny they're entertaining this movie kept my interest i've seen it a few times now and, and it just gets better each time i watch it and there's a turn towards the end of the film, and I think we said, what, around like the last 15 minutes of the film, when Benzie finds out that Momo and Neely um, have had sex, and then Neely realizes that she's pregnant and confronts Momo about it, and Momo just throws her away. Just wants nothing to do with her. She's a total drag now. I don't really want to deal with any of this kind of stuff. There's this summer vacation that most of the kids are going on, and he just wants to do that fuck everything else and it turns from this kind of light-hearted comedy for the most part into a very serious film because now Benzie because he is so in love with Neely ends up taking her to get an abortion and pays for the abortion and then they kind of live together I think of what is it like his one of his grandparents house or his grandparents house and they have this relationship he ends up telling her that he loves her and she seems to love him back and he uh, is going to her birthday party gets a locket for her goes through the party and sees her making out with Momo. He, she has completely forgotten about any sort of loyalty to Benzie. And that's where the movie ends. So it ends with one of the biggest kicks in the heart that you could possibly imagine. But this whole thing from all those, the, that whole last act of this film just completely tears the heart out of you. At least it does for me. And I, I know, Heather, you're, you're pretty heartless, but I, I imagine that it might have affected you as well. It completely, oh my God, just right in the gut, right in the heart. Um, it definitely just, it hit, 
it hits hard. It hits hard, especially because it's just you really, you really care about Ben Z. And I mean, he's um, and it's and it's perfect because he's not, you know, he's not showed to be like a perfect character. He's a kid. I mean, sometimes he's a little bratty with his parents, and, you know, but you know, he's basically just somebody who's got his heart on his sleeve and has done so much for this girl that he's in love with, for Nelly, and to have just basically everything that he's finally like finally you know he's bought this locket for her it's her birthday and just you you know all this hope he's got in his heart like yes my dream's gonna come true and just to see it completely get murdered and you know you just see his face and it's such a brilliant performance and you just you feel it you feel every ounce of that you know, you just, you feel it. It's so visceral and it's completely brilliant. It's such a bold move. I don't think a lot of American, like at least films that were aimed towards teenagers would be that bold. There's a handful of coming of age films that are kind of that bold that are American, but the bulk of them, especially the more popular ones will not, I don't think would have chosen to end that film like that. It's just, it's honest and bold. I love it. It hurts. (laughs) The way that he shoots the abortion scene I mean, I talked earlier about the Waldem Wall music and so much of this. I mean, other than the one use of Mr. Lonely at one point, I mean, so much of this is like party rock. You know, you could put it on at your party, at your living room party, uh, whatever that that term was, and you would have no problem. Everybody be kind of jamming out to it. And then the music fades and you just get Neely's heartbeat as she's in with this so cold and so impersonal abortion doctor and the way that he treats her almost just like a piece of meat, the way that he puts her legs up in the stirrups for this, that she has to be completely naked for this abortion is just so demeaning to me. I don't know if that was typical of the day, but just, you know, come on, give the girl a sheet or something to cover her up. And she just is there splayed out on this table with the heartbeat going on the soundtrack and it's just like, oh, man, that that scene alone was really getting me. And I was glad that they didn't necessarily – I don't think that they necessarily demonized abortion. I mean, because they seem to now – like, imagine a character in a movie now getting an abortion who isn't some sort of a monster. You know? It's just like – it's almost like you know people who smoke in movies now. It's just like all of these horrible things that you can do, you know, smoke and use drugs and all these things. Unless you're in a Seth Rogen comedy, I suppose. That's okay. But yeah, it's just uh, – I of course, for me, I'm like thinking of all these other abortions that happen in movies like dirty dancing is a nightmare there's so many nightmarish abortion scenes but in this one it just seemed like they treated it pretty matter-of-factly um the biggest thing for me seemed to be that 170 dollars that benzie has to get together and the way that he's going around and selling all of his stuff just doing anything that he can to get the money for this one could argue Granted, it's a sex comedy, and uh, but I do think that most of the sex sequences have some purpose for either, um, you know, even if the purpose is comedy, uh, they have a purpose. Like the Romanian, you know, the Romanian woman again, and we go back to the immigrants, and we go. Uh, you could you could layer it with 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 various uh, uh, meanings. I I I think you could argue that the uh, the abortion sequence. The fact that she gets completely naked is probably the most uh, exploit, like exploitative uh, thing in the movie. Uh, she really, you know, I, I like that scene. Like uh, I like everything else in the scene. I, I think that's a little over the top. Like in terms of it, they just needed her naked 
for the movie, so she would be naked in the film. I, she probably didn't, you know, didn't need to take all of her clothes off for that. But uh, it's it's a little it's a little crazy. But um, as a scene and as a use, like the use of of, of abortion in the movie is um, something that you definitely cannot cannot see today and you cannot do today. I I, I don't really think that happens. Um, I will also say just uh, to remark about the previous point uh, regarding the ending. Uh, beyond what it did to me as a kid, which was very traumatizing. Oh, I bet. Oh, my God. I was because you watched the movie and you're a kid and you're really feeling like, you know, you're with Bensi and you're like, you're him. You know, you feel like you're him. It's it's you. And then uh, and then that happens at the end and you get so hurt. I mean, I, I really it really affected me emotionally, that film. Even nowadays. I've I've shown that uh, Lemon Popsicle a few times uh, to film students. It's really interesting to see the response because a couple of times, for definitely a couple of times, when when the film ended and he sees Neely back with Momo, and and Bensi starts walking away and he walks down the street crying, and then the titles go up and there's a gasp in the room. The students and they, they gasp because nobody's expecting it. Like nowadays, this would never happen. Nobody's conditioned to seeing that. You, I mean, even in Last American Virgin, when he gets to the car and then the titles start, it's shocking. She doesn't run after him or he doesn't understand that like she's terrible and he doesn't need her. It's just literally like, no, he's just heartbroken and that's it. Yeah, this movie brought back a lot of bad memories when I was watching it. <laughs> <clears throat> it'll it'll do that. You know, but I think it's the thing is so many of these films, you know, of these t- type of films don't really, you know, when they play to the underdog, it never feels like a real underdog. Like you feel like whoever wrote it was actually probably really popular in school and and had no problems getting laid and didn't really have that much heartbreak, you know, whereas Benzi, you do. I mean, I identified with them. And I mean, I know I'm a girl. And apparently heartless, according to Mike. <laughs> but um, but no, um, I kid on that. But no, I mean, I think it's just, it's the human condition. I think the human condition element with that character in this film is just so strong and just, just beautifully handled. As I uh, we've mentioned before, this is a whole series of films. So luckily, Benzie isn't necessarily defeated and devastated forever. So the next year, there was another Lemon Popsicle going steady, and that allowed folks to see the continuing adventures of Benzi and Yudele and Momo. People were surprised when I said, no, no, there's not just the one Lemon Popsicle, there's like nine Lemon Popsicles, <laughs> plus the remake. And this was like one of these kind of like Josh Hadley tasks where it's like, oh, you have to watch, you know, 11, 13 movies. Like, hey, we're going to do the Witchboard series. I think that's like 26 movies or something. So luckily it wasn't that crazy, but there were definitely diminishing returns. We'll talk about the sequels as we go on, but there was just so much success that this did merit the American remake. I mean, we get remakes of things from other countries all the time, and I'm sure that even in the early 80s, we were getting remakes of, of films from other countries. But it was kind of unusual that the Lemon Popsicle series is still going on while we're getting the first one, while we're getting Last American Virgin here in the United States. Yeah, it was really a, a machine at that point because Canon started working. They still weren't at their height at that period. They were kind of finding their footing in the industry. But Golan and Globus were here, and Lemon Popsicle at that point as a series was uh, 
almost like running on like automatic, uh, co-produced with uh, with with Germany, and the movies just they just kept making them. Like I I, I really I kind of feel like they were almost very very detached like a less american virgin is this it's its own like entity boas and and golan and globus actually go uh go far back uh in israel boas well you know to give like a little bit of background on boas boas at the point of making lemon popsicle which uh, you know and and after the first lemon popsicle all boas did was in israel uh, were Lemon Popsicle sequels and one more movie in 1986 called uh, Alex's Lovesick, which is a fantastic movie. I, I mean, I think Boaz was one of the great, is one of the great Israeli film directors. Um, and definitely, definitely by far uh, the best comedy film director in Israel. And he, by the time that he made Lemon Popsicle, he was the most successful film director in Israel. And I think, at least that's, uh, he told, he, he was saying at that point uh, he was the only film director who was able to make a living purely off of directing film like movies and he directed you know as as much as Lemon Popsicle is a cult film Boaz directed like four other cult films that everybody knows and quotes in Israel before uh, he did a number of them almost every movie Boaz made in the 1970s became a cult film so Lemon Popsicle was the top of the top. And the same year that he did Lemon Popsicle, he did the first Israeli candid camera film as well. So he had like two of the most successful movies of the year in theaters at the time. And Golan and Globus produced a lot of those movies as they were really the main producers in Israel before they, they moved to the United States. They were, they, I mean, Menachem Golan essentially invented the Israeli film industry. This is also a point where I should say that I think a lot of people have been exposed to Lemon Popsicle, at least on the surface a little bit, via the um, documentary about Golan and Globus, the, what is it, not the Go-Go Boys, but the other one, Electric Boogaloo? Because when I've mentioned uh, Lemon Popsicle or Last American Virgin to people lately, it seems like that's where the recognition is coming from. Like, oh yeah, I saw clips of that in Electric Boogaloo. It's like, yeah, there's a whole lot more to it. So uh, I hope that this is going to inspire some people to to try to track down these films. I mean, American Last American Virgin, fortunately, is fairly easy to find. Lemon Popsicle, not necessarily that easy to find, um, at least a good copy of it. But we'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about the sequels in the second half of the show. So let's go ahead. We're going to take a break and play a trio of interviews. The first is with the co-writer and director of Lemon Popsicle, Boaz Davidson. The second is with Udile himself, Zaki Noy. And the third is with Karen from The Last American Virgin, Diane Franklin. And we'll be back with all those after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, 
sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superman episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... That's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at proudlyresents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, the projection booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. Before we even talk about Lemon Popsicle, I'm curious how you kind of got into the business. You know, I think I started when I was a little boy. Uh, I liked movies like everybody else. In my times, living in, I mean, you know, I was born and raised in Israel. And in those days, the only window to to the wonders of the world and and to, to for escapism or whatever was to go to the theater. You know, there was nothing which was as big as cinema. You would go and buy a ticket, or you would sneak in into the theater without the ticket, and you go into this world and you sit there and you're just flying. You know, you just you fall in love. You get angry, you hate, you laugh, you're being taken to strange places. So obviously, I was very, very influenced by, by cinema as everybody else. But I, I, from very young age, I wanted to do cinema. So when I was a little boy, I, I did short movies and I, as much as I could. And I, I was a kind of a movie. This buff who goes to the um, trash cans of all the distributors, and I would collect those pieces of film and stuff like that, and or, or 
posters. Uh, it, it was so difficult to get it in our time. So I knew that this is what I want to do. And then I had to go to the army like any other Israeli. And when I finished the army, I went to the London Film School and I studied movies. And um, and then I came back to Israel and immediately I started to make movies. And that's the rest of the history. What was the Israeli film market like when you came back after studying in London? The film industry in Israel was very, very small and making movies in Israel was considered committing suicide. To tell you the truth, I was the, the very first uh, Israeli film director that made his living out of directing movies. We had a few directors, but, you know, they had to, to direct and then go and teach at the university or do some other jobs. But I was lucky, I guess, and I had to work very hard and I, I used to, to make many, I would say to almost to every offer that I got and, uh, and between the big features, I did whatever, commercials, short movies, TV, you name it. It was a very, as I said, it was a very difficult market because at that time, the only market was the Israeli market. We didn't sell movies to, to the foreign countries. And, and, and it's like if you, you know, in American numbers, it's like if some, if one would do a movie just for some neighborhood in, in a, in a city, you know, because this was it. But as I said, I was very lucky and some of my movies were so successful that they, that people came coming to see them again and again and again. And I kept working. When did you first meet uh, Golan and Globus? Well, Golan and Globus, they were the king of the Israeli cinema. They had everything. They had a distribution company. They owned cinemas. And they had the balls to make movies. So when I started, I knew them already. And even uh, when I was cutting, uh, editing my first feature, Menachem Golan was cutting his picture um, in the next room in this facility that we were. So we used to talk a lot, but I didn't work for them. It took me a few years until I made, I think, my fifth feature or something like that. And we had a lot of fights, I must admit, you know, uh, which sounds funny today, but in those days, you know, we would do wild posting, which means people are going at night and they are putting posters of the movie wherever you you can, you know, like on fences, on walls. And, and I remember one night uh, just before my movie opened and he had his new movie. We, we opened at the same weekend and I was working with some friends very hard to, to put posters all over the town. And then when I drove back, I saw that he covered my posters with his posters. We had this rivalry, I think. And by the way, my movie beat his movie by far. And so then it was only, it, it was only a natural thing that we'll join forces because, because I became like the, the most successful director and, and he had the most successful production company and operation. So they offered me to work, make a movie for them. And I, I said yes. And then, you know, I became like, I don't know, for every occasion, if it's, of course, for the summertime, you need the movie. And then from this, for, for the springtime, you need the movie and for this holiday and that holiday. I don't know. I was like a, almost a robot, you know, who makes movies according to the calendar. 
can you tell me how did Lemon Popsicle come about for you? After making a lot of really commercial movies, I felt the need to make one movie which maybe won't be so commercial, but I need it for my soul, I need it for my heart. And this was the story about me growing up. And and basically, it's it was a pain that I was carrying for some time since I was in my teens. And I wanted to, to deal with it. I guess like somebody else would go to a therapy. I don't know, but it was my way. So I went to Golang Globus and I said, listen, guys, there's this movie that I want to work on. And I, I cannot promise you that it will be commercial like the other ones, but it's something that they agreed if, if the budget will be really, really low. So we had to cut on crew members. We had to cut on a lot of things. And I was just praying every day. I always but, but especially in this one, I was praying that we will cover the cost. And the, the cost of the movie was very, very minimal. I think uh, I, I shot the movie in 21 or 23 days, I can't remember. And the budget was like $100,000. And I went and I did the movie, you know, and it became the number one box office movie in Israel of all times until today. The record wasn't broken. And it became the first movie that took Golan Globus really to the markets around the world because the movie was sold all over the world and became a huge hit all over Europe, all over the Far East, in Latin America. You can never know. You, 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 you're making a small movie. You don't believe that it will be commercial. Uh, you do it, as I said, like as something that you, you want to do it because you owe it to yourself. You know, I, I, it was a big, big, big surprise. And I, I think it was, uh, because you have to understand if I, in this movie, if all stuff that happened to me is, uh, I, you know, the, the, the lead guy is my story. The parents, the character of the parents are my parents and the friends are my friends. And I would never believe in any wild dream that, for example, in Japan, it will become number one because what they know about my culture and what they know about my life and so on. But I was proven wrong, you know, so to my big surprise and everybody's surprise. And then we went on and we did a lot of sequels to the movie. The soundtrack for the film is amazing. How on earth were you able to secure all of those songs at that point? Well, it was difficult, but also it was easier than today. Obviously, there's nothing which gives a filmmaker joy, like trying different famous songs. When you're in the editing room and you try this song and that song, and every song means something to you, and, and it happens that those songs were all number one hits and famous songs, and, and if you try to get a soundtrack like that today, it's, it's millions and millions and millions of dollars. But then we found a way, because in those days, you know, the, the labels, were still small labels. You, you didn't have yet those huge companies that through the days they bought all the small labels. And then those labels in America, they had also sub-distributors around the world. You know? So, for example, somebody told me that the guy who had the rights for a song by Little Richard in Sweden died 
and his wife got it, his widow, and she wants to sell it. So we found her and we bought it. <laughs> and and this way, we had a guy from Nata who was very good at it. His name was Jack Fishman. And he was like very familiar with this world and the owners of, of different songs in different places around the world. Also, you know, let's say that uh, you had a famous song, which the original was in the U.S. Then in many cases, another company could take the same song with the same artist and re-record it in a different country. So there were cases like that too. It was a different game in those days. Now it's so much difficult, and it was also much more difficult when we did the last American version, where we had to buy everything from the U.S. already. And uh, but but there is no doubt that this is the most difficult part. This was the most difficult part of the movie to get all the all the music. What was it like for you? putting your own memories and your own story up on screen like that in this kind of fictionalized form? I was At the beginning, I was a bit nervous. I had the urge to do it, but then as I was going through it, I felt that it liberates me. I really felt like it's a healing process. And for some reason, it was for everybody. And, and we were just talking about the music. And, you know, I used to play on the set um, the music. And immediately I felt, because most of the crew, you know, they were my age and, and they all knew those songs. So when I played the songs, everybody was like, there was like electricity in the air. Everybody got engaged into it and everybody felt like, Oh my God, this is something. It's moving me. I don't know. People, people started to be nicer, to hug each other and to smile or to cry. And it, it, it was a very, very special experience. And for me, I think it was the most, definitely, I never had this kind of experience before. And I didn't have this kind of level of satisfaction after that. What they did is when I had my first cut of the movie, I invited the real girl who broke my heart to come and watch the movie. And while we were sitting in this small screening room, obviously, most of the time, I looked at her, you know, and then I went and I saw the tears in her eyes. I had such a satisfaction and I felt that, the, that I closed the circle. So the, it was magic. Yeah. How closely do the sequels kind of follow with your story or were, did you take these characters into new realms? The, the original, the first one was like totally genuine as far as my life and, and so, so on. In the feature, in the sequel, I, 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 I kept doing it, but it wasn't anymore. I maneuvered it. I invented some stuff. And we had already the characters, so it was easy as far as the characters, because it became like, you know, you're using the same characters, and they told you already what they want to say and what they want to do. You felt it. And, but it, 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 they didn't have, and, and also the movies became like a co-production with Germany from the second one, and the German market was kind of demanding more of the sexual stuff, so we had to find the right balance, and all of a sudden there was this 
feeling of uh, responsibility because all of a sudden there were so many fans of these movies around the world. My God, now I'm responsible. I don't have to. I, I can't put them down. I have to. So I started to think a little bit different, which I don't think was good because, as I said, I did the first one. I didn't think about anybody. I was just thinking about telling the story that happened to me and without any thoughts about audiences. And all of a sudden now, I said, oh, shit, I have so many fans in Japan. Would they understand this? Would they understand that? And then what What about the Greek people? And what about the English people? And what about people in Brazil or Argentina, you know? So I think this took away a little bit from the authenticity. So I prefer, I totally prefer the first one, which was just direct from the heart and and to the heart of the of the audience. How was it kind of revisiting this yet again and, and doing this as your first American feature? Well, it wasn't my first American feature, but, but it was very strange feeling. Uh, Golden Globes, they really wanted me to do it, and I wasn't sure because I, I didn't have the same motivation as the first one. But the, the, the motivation, uh, there was some kind of motivation because I said, oh, I'm so sorry that the American audience, because by then I lived in America and I felt, oh my God, if, if only the American audience could also uh, experience my movie, you know, I would be very happy. But at that time, America was really, really lazy for foreign movies. Couldn't see foreign movies anywhere. So I couldn't show my Israeli movie and so, so this was one of the main reasons because uh, I wanted to introduce it to the American audience. It was different. We did where the first one, the first movie was a, a nostalgic movie, and when I did the last American version, it was about capturing the moment at that time of the eighties. You know, I had the same DP Adam Greenberg who, who did with me the top school and then this one, and I remember talking to him and I said, Adam. Are we doing the right thing? Isn't it a scene like we did it before? And isn't it like cheating? And he said, no. Hitchcock did it too, and some other people did it. So, hey, why not? Obviously, the movie didn't have the same success at the box office. But through the years, people really reacted very good to this movie, and it became kind of a cultish movie, which you can see every time on different lists of teenage movies. And through the years, while working here in America, when I, you know, I meet different directors who are younger than, younger than me, and many of them, when they come to my office, because I have here on the wall the poster of Last American Virgin, and they, they look at it and they say, wow, you like this movie too. What do you mean? Like I did this movie, and they don't, and they and they and they start talking to me about it, and uh, and how much they remember this scene and that scene, and and especially, um, you know, when I when I showed my first movie, my uh, the Eleven to some audience in America or American friends, they said, "Wow!" But the end, it, it will never work in America. This kind of end, you know, where the boy doesn't get the girl at the end. This is. No, no. But now, as I said, through the few years when I meet filmmakers, they love this. And I think still for a lot of audience, it, it will be, it, it, it looks like a downer probably, but not to me. And um, 
this is life, you know, it happens and you finish circle and you start over again and life will be good in the future. Was there discussions of doing a sequel to Last American Virgin or was the box office just not there to support it? No, we are talking about it now as we speak. One of the people who is, uh, uh, and maybe you should talk to him, who is really, really um, pushing to do this movie is Brett uh, Ratner, yeah. You know, he has a big company and so on, and he is like pushing me all the time. He wants to do it with us. And we are talking together about doing a, and this is the movie of his, he was, by the way, he was totally in love with Ben Franklin. I mean, when he was a when he was a kid and he used to see the movie and he saw the movie hundreds of times, hundreds of times, you know. So you should talk to him. What are you working on these days? On these days I'm working on uh on you know, we have different movies in different stages, you know. And I'm involved in a lot of stuff if it's in the pre production or the production or the post production. And uh and basically we are working now I'm really involved now. This takes a lot of my time now in working on Expendables for the next installment in the Expendables franchise. This is a movie, a movie which is very important to us, and I'm working on it with uh, with Sylvester uh, Stallone. And uh, so actually, this is my main priority this days. Is that the female-led Expendables? No, 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 no. This is the guy. The female, we are working on it too. Uh, we are not there yet. It's all in. We work on on a lot of of um, projects, but uh, there is a stage where you are just you feel that you are ready to go to cast, and now it's the waiting time. And one of the most difficult things in Hollywood, especially for an independent company, is to cast the movie. And in our days, all over the world. The um, in all over the markets, um, the buyers, distributors, and so on, they all want um, movie stars in their movies, you know. And the group of movie stars is not as big, and they have so many, there's a lot of competition to get them. So, as I said, this is the, 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 the toughest stage is to cast the movie. Like many times, we are ready, we are ready to run, and now we just need to the cast and this holds us back. Anyway, we just finished a submarine movie with Gerard Butler called, called Hunter Killer. We just finished a movie which I'm going to see the first cut on Monday, which is Hitman Bodyguard, which is, at least from the dailies and from the script, I have a big, big hope for this movie. And it's with uh, Ryan Reynolds and Summer Jackson. Uh, we are working on a new sequel for, you know, our, our franchise. Olympus uh, has fallen and London has fallen. The next one is Angel has fallen. So we're preparing this one. And as I said, we are working on The Last American Virgin to remake that. And a lot of other movies, you know. I mean, we are a little factory. We're doing about, about 10 to 12 movies here. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I, I asked for 20 minutes. You gave me a half an hour, so I appreciate you going over with that. No, no, it's okay. Don't worry. And if you need anything, when you work on it and you feel that you need some other things, you can always call me. All right. Thank you so much, Mr. Davidson. I really appreciate this. Sure. Take care.
there were green fields kissed by the sun. Once there were valleys where rivers used to run. Once there were blue skies with white clouds high above. Once they were part of an everlasting love. We were the lovers who strolled through green fields. How did you decide to get into the business? How did you become an actor? Well, I'm I'm 63 now, so I started to act. And I was born in Haifa. I started out, uh, you know, watching films, theater, and I, I got in love with this uh, media. You know, from from the from the age of 10, 11, I think. So I started out in uh, you know in school to make imitations and be funny and things like this. And then a friend of mine said to me, there is a theater for the children are um, performing, you know, and uh, for audience. And it's a director with, uh, with, uh, that makes a nice stage and everything and makes the answers. So I started out with uh, Cinderella was uh, my first uh, play that I did. And I played uh, as the ugly sister, one of the ugly sisters. This part, you know, to dress as a, as a, as a girl. Uh, with uh, makeup and everything, uh, and then acting on stage made me a big joy. You know, uh, it's like, uh, you know, the the boy that played uh, Billy Elliot when he came to 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 ballet to the school, and they asked him, well, what does he feel when he dances? He said, like fire, and when and when he's up in the air or something. That's what I felt in that time, and uh, I decided. Uh, you know, when I will grow up to be an actor, a professional actor. So uh, I made the, this theater for children, and then I, I went to the army. I served in the army ensemble for for the soldiers as an actor. And it wasn't the Yom Kippur War. I was like three and a half years in the army, but I started to, until I got to an uh, army ensemble that uh, makes the shows for soldiers uh, after a year that I was in the army. So uh, my experience was in Yom Kippur World because I had to like uh, perform five, six days uh, around uh, in the battlefield, you know, in the Golan Heights or in Sinai. And at that time I was like uh, 19, uh, 20. And I um, got a lot of uh, experience, you know, making these uh, imitations and telling jokes and things like this, you know, uh, in front of the soldiers. It's a lot of experience, you know. And then when I I, I, I went out of the army, I, I finished my army serving. Um, I went to a producer in Tel Aviv and he said to me that uh, there is a, there is another guy that we can play like, uh, you know, twins. You know, he's tall and uh, very skinny, and I'm short and fat. So we can be like uh, Pat and Patachon or Laurel and Hardy, so something like this. So we were making performing for about a year. And uh, one of the performing in Tel Aviv, uh, a guy came up to me, and said to me, listen, uh, I'm a director from Russia. I'm already in Israel uh, about uh, two years, and I'm directing a movie now. 
And uh, I didn't like so much the show you did, but I think you're a terrific actor, and I think I have a part for you. Can we meet? So we met, and I made a movie called The Garden, and then this movie was uh, one of the biggest uh, uh, actors in Israel, Shaiki Ophir, who was uh, really a, a big uh, monument, you know. Until now, his name is uh, he's one of the terrific actors. And I saw him, and I had uh, some scenes with him. But next to him played uh, in that time, she was 17 or 18, Melanie Griffith, you know. They brought her to Israel because they saw uh, a naked photo of her in a Playboy magazine or something. So I had the chance to be performing with Melanie Griffith in the same frame. In the premiere of this film were the producers and the director of Lemon Popsicle. And they cast me without audition for this film, for Lemon Popsicle. And that was my, my, my big uh, start, actually, because the Popsicle film became such a big hit, not only in Israel, but very much uh, the same in Germany and in Japan. And it was even in the Berlin uh, Festival in '78. And that's how it started everything for me. And since then, I'm in the business. I'm working all the time. You know, I'm doing a lot of theaters and uh, from time to time television series and uh, some movies. There is not a big industry in Israel for movies, but uh, still uh, I'm working from time to time. I'm doing uh, sometimes cameo parts, sometimes big parts. What was your experience like working on that first film and having it be such a success? The Lemon Popsicle was for me, you know, something that I didn't expect. It, it was a very hard uh, part for me to play this chubby guy that uh, is a loser and uh, he's funny. And <laughs> I had to, you know, some uh, scenes were not so uh, easy for me in that time. I was 22 in the first movie. But I enjoyed myself, uh, you know, uh, acting. And uh, I, I probably, I didn't uh, play myself, but I, I brought a lot of experience, a lot of uh, thinking about the scenes. And I, I tried to to use the moments that I was acting there, you know, for, for my, for my uh, acting. It means if I was scared in that, uh, or I felt uncomfortable, I, I used it. Because during the movies, I even make uh, uh, I made a play with a French director in Israel that came to Israel who did the, the La Malade Imaginaire, the how do you say from Molière. I did a, a part, the French uh, a French uh, play, and uh, he said to me always when I ask him something, he said to me, "Use it." He said the word "use it," you know. And uh, that was uh, my my uh, big experience, I think. Though I was very young, I, I used a lot of instincts, a lot of intuitions, and uh, that's probably part of uh, acting, actually. You know, there's something that no school can teach you. You know, today I have uh, a little bit of a stigma because of this part, you know, because the first, the big hit, the first big hit that you are in, in it, that's what the, the producers always Thing, that's what you can do as an actor. You know, the biggest actors in the world, like uh, Stallone, or everybody remembers them from the from Rocky or from Rambo. You know, and um, you know, I cannot eat uh, the cake and the, 
a part of the cake and leave it, uh, <laughs> you know. So um, it's okay. I mean, I'm I'm struggling all the time for to get uh, new parts, and um, and and actually I'm I'm successful because from time to time I have jobs. It's not that easy because you're getting uh, older, and there are a lot of young people all the time trying to build this profession. You know, and there's reality things that it's now all over the world is also uh, making a big difference because people can now of uh, 15 minutes of glory uh, become stars, you know. And lucky enough in my time, I really did work for, for, for my name and for, my, for this profession. I was lucky, you know, to succeed in a very early age, in a very young age, but uh, I'm happy that this happens to me, you know. I'm curious about some of your other roles. Can you tell me about working on things like uh, The Magician of Lublin or Arabian Nights? Yeah, Magician of Lublin was a big, uh, it was a beautiful, uh, you know, uh, beautiful movie by Bashevizing. Uh, uh, it was a costume movie, and I had a big, uh, big lovely chance to work uh, as the son of Shelley Winters in that time. And they play next to Alan Arkin and Louis Fletcher and, and some stars like this. You know, if this movie, The Magician of Lublin, was as successful as Lemon Popsicles, I probably would make this kind of character part all my life, you know. But unfortunately, it didn't uh, make a big hit in the cinemas at that time. Um, but it was great to be in it. You know, I played Bullock, the, the son of, uh, of Shelley. And it was a great experience also to meet with her. You know, she's already, she's not alive anymore. But I remember when I met her, we became friends. And then I lived uh, for a couple of years in Los Angeles. And uh, she introduced me to Lee Strasberg in Los Angeles. And, and I met her in New York and uh, everything. And uh, and I, I lived for about two years in L.A. If I would uh, keep living there, maybe I would get a television or a new movie, but uh, I was anxious enough to, to to be successful. So I went back to Israel, where everybody knows me, because to stay in, a, in a, such a big country like America, in a big state like uh, the USA, and not to succeed there, it's better to, to sit in Israel and uh, try to get parts over here, you know. And I have a dream, not like Martin Luther King, but I have a dream that uh, one day a good director will uh, look for a character like me or a face like me, you know, and uh, cast me in, uh, not not just in a comedy, also a comedy is good, but uh, cast me in a, in, a, in a good movie with a good director because I'm as good as the director that I work with and that I'm as good as the script. You know, it's very important, a good script. And I noticed that uh, one of the, you know, my favorite actors today, uh, Robert De Niro, is doing a lot of uh, comedies with uh, younger people uh, because he wants also to be alive in this profession, you know. And it's not enough, uh, you know, with such a big resume that he has, he's still uh, starving for roles, you know, because uh, once you're an actor, you cannot sit at home. You know, even you are big stars like De Niro, but he has a, uh, you know, a company. Uh, he's a producer himself. He's also a rich actor. 
So sometimes they invest in movies. We in Israel, we don't have this kind of money like big actors in America because American movies are all over the world. Israel is a small country. If, uh, and if you, you one time you make a success like Popsicle, you dream, uh, you dream all your life to, to make another success, you know. But I'm happy that I'm working. You know, and a guy like you are even calling me and making an interview with me. I was very surprised to see you in Enter the Ninja. Yeah, that's uh, a part that I got uh, from uh, Golan directed it. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, it was a good character. You know, he made him a little bit uh, too, uh, you know, I got bit it all the time. I could have made some more uh, things in it. Um, but it was it was okay. It was an action movie, uh, B or C action movie, and um, you know my 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 friends in the states now, Avi Lerner and Boss Davidson, who directed this popsicle, he's doing they are doing this company is doing a lot of uh, big movies in uh, Los Angeles. This um, this company called Millennium or uh, New Image, or and they are doing some good movies. They are doing some even uh, some good movies. And I tried from time to time to speak with them, but uh, you know they they too far from me, you know. But uh, maybe somebody like uh, a director or producer will uh, see me as you saw me, and uh, one day they will <laughs> buzz me, you know, to come for an audition or something. You played Udale so long for over the years, and then you kind of came back and uh, played Yehuda in uh, The Party Goes On. What was it like kind of switching roles inside of the Lemon Popsicle series? Now, this movie was terrible. It was a mistake that uh, I did it because I was promised that it's going to be a TV series. And it uh, actually, I did the same part, but a little bit older. But it was a lousy movie. They tried to... Uh, to make a remake of Popsicle with three young uh, new guys. And I think it was uh, a b- very bad movie. The proof of it, that it didn't uh, make uh, any success. It made some uh, 120,000 uh, viewers in Israel, maybe. and But then nobody bought it, this movie, for Germany or other territories like Popsicle. Because it was, uh, you know, it was a bad copy of Popsicle, actually. And I'm sorry that I did my. I, I gave myself to be in this movie because uh, they promised me that it's going to be a TV series, you know, and not a, a motion picture. But after they edited it, nobody in television bought it, so uh, they decided that it was uh, shot in 16 millimeters. So they made a blow up for 35. And they brought it up in the, in the movies and the, the cinemas in Israel. And, but even in Israel, it was not such a big hit. If we want to make a closure for this popsicle, we have to uh, make a reunion of three of us, you know, and uh, make a story like uh, what happened to these three guys 40 years later from the first one. But I don't believe that uh, it, will, uh, it will happen because... Uh, one of the of our of the guys of us, you know, the the good-looking guy, he has a lot of antagonism to this movie. Unfortunately, I don't believe it will happen unless uh, somebody will write such a good script and uh, and pay us such an amount of money that will convince convince him 
the good-looking guy to make it. But, uh, you know, it could be a good idea because uh, people like uh, nostalgic movies and uh, the movie should be like uh, the end of the first obstacle where Danny is going and crying and then should be a title 40 years later, you know, and to write a, a story. You know, that's really doesn't take place in that time, not in the 60s, uh, something that it's today. But it's a dream, it's a vision that I have in my head, but I don't believe it will happen. I'd watch it. Okay. I can laugh when things ain't funny. <laughs> Happy go lucky me. Yeah, I can smile. When I ain't got no money <laughs> Happy go lucky me It may sound silly but mm, I don't care I got the moonlight, I got the sun I got the stars above Me and my Billy, well, we both share so Happy go happy, happy go lucky How did you get your start in the business? I met an agent when I was four years old, um, but it wasn't because my parents wanted me to be in the business. It was because I was one of those kids that was singing and dancing in the living room. And I mean, parents out there know those kids. It's like, I just loved, I wouldn't say performing, but I just, I loved acting and singing and dancing. I loved the the activity of that, you know, my parents gave me a lot of attention. It wasn't for that, you know, like to get their attention, but it was definitely just something I've always loved. And then I didn't get an agent that young. I, my hair was too short and curly and it wasn't what was that fashionable. And so I started trying to get to this gym when I was 10. And uh, that was where my parents, they were, I mean, I just, I just didn't give up and they just were sort of listening to me and I started with modeling and then um, I got into commercials and I did theater and I did voiceover and soap opera and um, I was working, working and, but no big roles. I, I, I didn't, um, I like to do extra in the movie Endless Love, but in, until that soap opera role where I was like a recurring, it was not, I couldn't get in for leads and it was just kind of, I mean, I went in, but I never booked it. I, and I wasn't getting like, there were parts for friends of the leads and I, I wasn't getting that. And, but you know, I mean, I figured I didn't know any difference. So I just kept plugging away. And then when I was 19, that's when I went for the uh, audition for The Last American Virgin. And that's what got me my first film. That was the first film I did. And it was, I got a lead right off the bat. Yeah. What was that experience like for you? Can you tell me about the audition process itself? It's interesting because I wrote a book called The Excellent Adventures of the Last American French Exchange Babe of the 80s. And it's a long title, but it's on Amazon. If you're a Diane Franklin book, you can go there and you can get more detailed information. But this, what, the question you're asking me is leading me into my next book. And that is going to be about this particular situation with Last American Virgin. And Last American Virgin was such an interesting film 
I know it like played in Lincoln Center last year and I thought it was amazing because you're thinking you did this little film and you know who can see it and then on so many levels it is such a breakout film and I, I I'll tell you why the first thing was when I went for the audition I had an exam in college I was going to NYU at the time and I remember thinking, okay, I'm not going to go for this audition. So I'm going to let my hair go curly because I used to straighten my hair all the time. So when I got the audition, I was like, I'm definitely not going because, I mean, I didn't even straighten my hair and I'm taking this test. And so it was a chemistry exam. And when I took the test, I thought I had a better chance of getting a lead in the film than I did passing this test. <laughs> so I raced up to the audition. And when I got there, there was um, Menachem uh, and Yoram Golan and Globus were the producers. And Boyce Davidson had left because they had been looking at girls all day. But I was late because I was rushing up there and I was taking my uh, college exam. So when I got there, they didn't even have me read as far as I remember. I mean, I don't think they did. I, I remember seeing them and they were just like, okay, we think you look the right way or the part. I don't know. It wasn't even like a clear to me at the time, like now looking back, but I remember them saying, okay, that's it. You're, you know, we're going to have you come to California the following week and a screen test with Boaz. So obviously immediately I was somebody that looked like, the part that they wanted. So the following week, I, you know, flew out to California. You know, I, I, I don't even know if it was like, I think it was like midterms at the time. So I skipped school and went to California and I thought, okay, well, I'll have to do the classes, whatever. I got to California and I went to this building on Sunset. I think it was 64, 64 Sunset. I'm not sure. And I went by myself went up there to audition and I remember I met um, Lawrence and I met Steve Anton and Kimmy Robertson was also there. And then there were a couple of other guy auditioners. Um, I didn't see anybody else for the role that I was going for. And I think I was like one of the last people to audition and I auditioned with the guys and then they did a mix and match, you know, of like, you know, you try when you're auditioning, when you do a screen test or callback, you go with different people to see what the chemistry is like. Right in there, right while after we auditioned, boy, I said, okay, that's it. You guys are the cast. I mean, he said it immediately. And we were like, we looked at each other like, what? What's happening? I mean, we were going to shoot the following, I think it was the following week. We all had to just get ready to go. And I don't know if I even went back home. I think we just went right into shooting. And at the time, I didn't, you know, amazing, right? And at the time, I didn't understand guerrilla filmmaking. You know, I didn't know what that was. I was an actress. I auditioned for, you know, things, but I didn't know what that's about. And so to me, I thought all films were like this, like, okay, just get in there and do it. And like, it goes really, I mean, it does go fast, but this was amazingly fast, especially being on my own. I mean, think about it. I don't know if you have any kids, but when, if you have a 19 year old daughter and she can, you know, cross the country and, you know, my parents were like, what's happening? What's going on? Where are you? You're... <laughs> I'm like, I'm over here. I mean, because I had been in the business for so long, my parents knew I was capable of being alone and taking care of myself. And I mean, obviously they cared about me. And I, I did have a manager who was helping me and made me, you know, obviously feel more stable about everything in it. But that situation, looking back now, all those years of doing modeling, commercials, theater, soap opera, whatever, all those things gave me the ability to do 
the, the films I did at the time I did because at such a young age, because I had the confidence and I had practiced so long meeting people, going for auditions, memorizing dialogue, putting it out there. And so there's so many aspects of this film that's amazing is I kept saying to myself, like, why me? You know, like there's so many beautiful, talented girls out there. And I thought, what is the deal? What is what's going on with this? So um, this actually is what's leading up to my next book. And then I was the first actress who had curly hair uh, as a teenager in the business that was considered beautiful. And, and Last American Virgin, that my role was the character of the dream girl. And they could have taken any girl, you know, with blonde, blue eyes, hair, whatever, you know, that look. But I think because the directors were Israeli, you know, their idea of beauty, I mean, and I don't know with Boaz, you know, maybe I reminded him of, of the girl who the story was about, but my look was something that was very influential in me getting the part. And then I go on in my book to talk about other roles that I got afterwards and how it sort of hit and how all these other actresses with curly hair started getting work. But this wasn't happening before I did Virgin. And so when people look at that film, not only are they seeing a microcosm of the 80s, you know, 80s music and 80s style and that 80s hair, but my hair was the first to kickstart it all. And so I think it's, it's amazing because I'd been in the business 10 years before I saw it happening. I knew it because I was looking for the curly haired teenagers. I would have to say Amy Irving was the only other actress um, in 1977 she did Carrie. But she wasn't set up as the dream girl. She was a pretty girl, but she didn't play as young as I did. So it was, I, was looking, I was always looking for where's my role model? Where's the girl who's the pretty girl or who's the girl who gets the guy or who, whatever, you know, with dark hair and curly hair? And that wasn't given to that role. Those, those roles were given to more mainstream looking girls. So it was just, it's an interesting thing to come out of that film because to me, that film is like uh, sex education for guys. There's no other film that, that like, it draws the guys in with, with the sex, but then not only do they learn about sex, but they also learn about love. So I think it's kind of like a, a rite of passage, and it, it's one of those movies that I think surprises you. With Virgin, there were, there were these two tones to the movie. One was that kind of in-your-face, kind of very bold sort of sex, acts or sex things and the, the subject matter is you know like getting from the prostitute and getting crabs and sleeping with an older woman and like you know just like all these issues that maybe people you know obviously you know are issues that we you know as, as american culture we're not like going into that as much but then at the same time then there's this heartfelt thing going on and, and that to me was like how i approached the role i, I really do think if someone else got, had gotten that part that you would not feel that you would not have felt that because to me, when I did that movie, we all thought we were going to change the ending of that movie. Every one of us, Steve and Lawrence, we all came and thought, this is not what's going to happen, right? We're not going to be at the end. This is not the ending where, uh, you know, he's going to, you know, drive away crying. This is not going to be the end. And Boaz was adamant. He said, no, no, that's the way it is. And it was based on his true life. So to him, it was almost it's like autobiographical. But also I think part of it, came from the idea that an, a European outlook says this is life and there's nothing wrong with it. That's the way it is. So when you go and see it as an American, like last American version, you go, oh, it's an American movie. You're looking for that happy ending and it's not there. And you're sitting there going, what? And so you're even more devastated. I think if some European person saw it, maybe they wouldn't be as devastated. 
But if a person from our country sees it, they go, wait a minute, we're used to happy endings. This is not okay. Like, and so it sticks with you. And I think it sticks with you for years. And I've had guys come up to me and they said, you know, I can't believe you did that. <laughs> and I'm like, mm, it wasn't really me, but okay, okay. You know, and I had one guy, it was so funny. Like, I mean, I just couldn't tell. He was, we had some issues and he didn't know what reality was. And he's like, I can't believe you do that, did that. My girlfriend would never do that. I would never do it. And I said, you know what? I was wrong. I'm sorry. And the guy was like, okay. And he had closure. He took it and he left. He was like, okay, good. She said she was sorry. And it was like, okay. You know, I mean, it was that meaningful, you know, <sighs> I chose the wrong guy. Um, in my point of view, from my point of view, I wouldn't have chosen Rick. I wouldn't have. I would have chosen Gary. I mean, that was just who I was. So when I did the part, I had to say to myself, how am I going to rationalize this character? And so when I played Karen, I said, I mean, like, I was really young, but again, like I, I had played all these characters. I was dating a guy and we had to break up. And we, we broke up because I was going after my career. And he, we were in love and it was so like heart-wrenching. And when I did this film, it was sort of like an ode to him. Like I was thinking about what, you know, how like, you know, in life, you know, you go and you fall in love with somebody and if it's just not the right timing, it's not going to happen. And it's almost the worst, you know? Um, and, and for Karen, I, I kind of played in it. I thought, how can I rationalize her making these decisions without being a biatch, right? <laughs> So what I did was I thought, okay, she's one of those people that when you, whatever you look in front of, that's the thing you want. So I don't know if you've seen the movie Her, you know, um, it's like the movie where like it's about the robot and like every, every time, whoever she's with, it, the voice is who she's with. And so that's what this character is like, Karen, you know, if she's, Gary's there, then she's a Gary. And if, you know, Rick is there, then she's with Rick. And it's nothing bad on each other. It's just whoever is there. And so... I mean, it's kind of interesting because it was instinctive. Um, I remember you know, getting the script and going, what am I going to do with this? How am I going to make this real? And, and there's people that are like, I'm extremely verbose. <laughs> I mean, I learned it. I wasn't that, I mean, I always had a lot to say, but um, I didn't always say it. And when I did Virgin, that was totally character. I mean, as far as like, you know, being somebody who was just a girl, no personality, essentially, like no you know, big personality, not talkative, just the character of a girl who is sweet and nice and she goes and flows with the wind, you know? I mean, obviously every character you play, there's something where you can relate to it. I, I, and that's why today I still love that film. And for a while I was a little hesitant uh, because I was like, mm, are people, do they just like me in it because I have the nudity? Is that what the deal is? And then I just gotten so many heartfelt responses from from people that I thought, okay, then there's something more to it. You know, at least they saw what I was trying to give. And then the other part is, um, which is very cool, that movie really affected the life of Brett Ratner. And Brett is now a friend of mine, and he is an awesome guy. When I told him about my book, I asked him if he would do a forward, and he said he would. So when the book comes out, he wrote the forward to my book, and it's about how I influenced his life from that movie. And he, that movie was such a big deal to him that he actually got the right, bought the rights. So if there's a sequel or if there's a remake, not sequel, I think a remake, um, he has the rights to do it. And so we'll see. We'll see what happens. 
maybe by this time they'll cast you as the uh, the older woman who's uh, looking for yeah, fun yeah. with the three young boys. I said, I said, that you should cast me as the prostitute. And he's like, why? And like, because that's what happened to Karen, right? You want to see Karen become a prostitute. Love her via prostitute, right? So I thought, I mean, I thought that would be such a great callback to everybody who, who saw the film. But we'll see. We'll see. He said he'd put me in it, but whatever. We'll find out. So what was Boaz like to work with as a director? Oh, Boaz was so comforting and so nice. I mean, I was 19, but he, I mean, I just feel like he was like a dad, but he really was. Uh, I trusted him and he was very nurturing and I understood his, what he was looking for and how he, he came across because my parents were European. And so even though he's Israeli and my parents were Avenis and German, um, they had not, had an accent. So I was comfortable with working with him as a director. And he was very, very, if I was like nervous or um, kind of, you know, I mean, it was my first scene nudity and he was very cool with it. You know, you, you know, you have a closed set when you do that. He was very um, respectful and then also um, took it slow, didn't push me. And uh, yeah, it was, it was really, and, and you know, just was a really nurturing and, and good director. I mean, I just loved working with him. That film was the first film for all of us. Um, I know Steve did a, uh, who played um, Rick, he did a movie with Jodie Foster. I think he did Goonies actually before something. But all of us, otherwise, this was all our first movie. Lawrence was 17 when we did it. And um, Kimmy, it was her first movie. We were all, so we were actually movie virgins. <laughs> that's if you could say something like that. Yeah, we were movie virgins. You know, we had not done, um, I mean, I did Next and Endless Love, but really that was not, you know, speaking part. So, but that's why I think why we as a cast really bond. I mean, Joe, it was his first film too. So, but it's so cool though that we were like cult, it's a cult film, you know. It, it wasn't mainstream. It came out at the same time as Fast Times. Um, Fast Times to me is one of the American films. Kind of happy ending, you know. But both had abortions, both had, you know, the drugs. But um, Fast Times had the American characters, you know, the surfer, and like very, we could as Americans really identify with those characters. And in Virgin, we could identify with our heart, but it didn't feel completely American. It was, I don't know. Maybe you can tell me better. I mean, you could tell me if you think it is, but it was definitely the the cult or the the anti the the teen movie that wasn't the commercial film. I don't know, just I always just find it it's just an interesting comparison to Fast Time. No, I totally agree, and I I would kind of throw Porky's in there as well. And Porky's is interesting because yes. it comes at it from the Canadian point of view, I suppose. You know, it just feels a little off compared to Fast Times, but. Virgin feels like it's definitely almost like a reflection of American culture through a foreign lens, which I suppose in a way it is. That is beautiful. That's exactly it. And, and, and that's why, like, for instance, if you are, if, I mean, this is interesting for filmmakers. If you're a filmmaker and you go to another country and you can get your financing and you go and make a film there, it's not going to have the same, it's not going to be the same as if you make it in your own country. It's going to, or at least the, the, the people watching it are going to see it as a little different. And I think you're like, you're right. Corky's had a little something different Virgin something different. you can see the cultural influences and that's not bad. It's just, you can see it. You see it through a different lens. That's absolutely correct. And, and you know, Fast Times was through the American lens for sure. 
And it was fun because, I mean, what's really fun for me is that here, here I worked, years later, I worked with Amanda Wiss, who was in Fast Times, in Better Off Dead. And then years later as well, I worked with um, Roger Wilson, who was in Porky's. So it's so fun that all these, you know, these teen films, we all kind of either auditioned at the same time or we, you know, and, or, you know, did films together later on. It's just so, so fun. So really, that's what I'm really enjoying now is, is running into people and seeing, you know, these actors who I grew up with, it's almost like going in high school, you know, with, and seeing, realizing we've had this journey where we, our paths have crossed in different ways. So you, you mentioned uh, a recent screening, or I guess it was last year of it. What was that like seeing the film again, especially with an audience? There was a couple of things. One was that I was still surprised at how much the audience loved that film. It's so many years later. I mean, I, I, first of all, never even imagining that the film would necessarily come out. I mean, we did the film, but at the time we did it, it wasn't a given that the film would even come out. Then it came out, and people started watching it and watching it and watching it. And like, it stayed in the theaters for a long time, and it did really well. It wasn't that it did the best, because I know like and there were a lot of other films, obviously, out during that time, but it held its ground, and it, it, people would, it was sort of like maybe a word of mouth. People would say, hey, go see this film. So it held its ground in the theater, and then so today, like when I, you know, I've seen it, um, it is amazing to me that we're, you know, seeing it in a theater or, you know, that you can go online and see it or that we're even, you and I are talking about it, you know? Um, and I'm grateful that Boaz is, you know, around and, you know, we can still ask him questions and, you know, you know, I mean, everyone who's involved, it's just such a, um, it's a moment in time for me. I, I, I look at it and I go, this is, this is a special thing. And, um, and I'm, I'm really, really excited um, that because of this, this new book that's coming out, it's going to put, it's going to, put a lot of things together and a link a lot of information and I wouldn't have had that perspective at that time I wouldn't have been as open about the film I mean you know there's abortion and then there's like nudity and then there's cocaine and like all those things in the film and when you're a young person and you're doing it you know you're and especially during that time there were I don't know there were a lot of films like that it was just starting to come out I mean certainly Virgin was the first one of its kind that because it was like 1981 when we did it, when we actually shot it. I think it's in 82, but we shot it in 81. And so it, that, those films weren't being made. It was, I think, the greer of all the films because it was early 80s. As, it, as the 80s went on, the, the film felt a little clear. Anyway, but so, so yeah, your question is, yeah, I, I love watching it now because I can see the full picture of it and I can see also maybe what people see today. And I also hate myself. <laughs> I mean, I seriously watched this film and I watched the film and I went, oh my gosh, I am so horrible. I mean, this is, I can see why people hate me because you do not see it coming. You do not see it coming. You're like, you know, oh, yeah, you know, you're just like, my character is so sweet. And then bam. And you're like, what? So I think even today seeing that ending and seeing that I even was saying, oh my gosh, I was such a bitch. Right. <laughs> This is one of your, well, first major role. You're in a lead. What does this do for your career then? Again, this brings me back to this book that's coming out. And the name of the book is going to be um, Diane Franklin, The Excellent Curls of the Last American French Exchange, Babe of the 80s. So it's, it's the same title, except with the word curls instead of adventure, excellent adventure. Uh, it's going to be like a coffee table book, but it also, ha it's going to have 
tons of pictures because that's what I wanted to do. The first book was more information about how I became an actress and my background on all the films I did and what it was like, how did I become an actress and who, you know, how, how do you even do that? How do you go to the movie star when you have no connections? How does that even happen? Starting as a child. And then, and then now this book, tons of photos and the background story on how my curly hair influenced my life, but also how it influenced other people's lives. That is coming up. But uh, in the meantime, how that film did for me was it was because of Last American Virgin that I even got Better Off Dead because Better Off Dead, uh, the director saw me in the film and he remembered me and he said, I'd love you to come in. And when I came in, I, I was originally being seen for the part of Beth, but I just loved, I, I came in with a French accent. I was like, I'm going to talk like this and that is what I'm going to do. And uh, I want this all. And uh, we are going to, uh, I want to play Monique, you know, <laughs> I knew I mean, and was like blown away. He was like, what? What are you doing? So, which is so sweet. He actually wrote the foreword for my first book. So if you get that, uh, you'll see what he wrote. And he talked about how he cast in that film. So Virgin helped me with that. And um, it also, um, I mean, again, here's a film that I thought, who's seeing this film? Who is going to actually watch this film? And I think what happened was a lot of guys saw that film. <laughs> A lot of guys. And I think the word spread. And I think, and I know there was a picture of me that was in Variety at a time when nobody knew who I was. And that picture was of me with curly hair. Again, nobody had had that, had seen, you know, curly hair was not a thing. So it really stood out. And from that point on, that, I mean, that film, I think, gave people, they, I think they, Saw it, or they if they saw it, maybe they didn't admit they saw it, and then they they would call me in, and so I started that just kicked my career. It just started the whole thing, and I mean, although I did like I did Amityville afterwards, Virgin had not come out yet, but the ads for it started to come out, and so I mean, just sort of like this film's coming up, you know, it's going to be shown at um, I think it was MIP, like they they used to do like the they bring it to the markets and they they sell the films. And that film was did really well, and it I, I gotta assume I, I think it must have done really well internationally, because that's what Cannon's thing was. Like they would sell a film, but it wasn't just the American market; it was all over. So they're always going to make a film that you can enjoy visually as well as by you know speech. So I mean, they did a lot of action films, and um, uh, but I'll tell you one thing that I was very surprised about. I was surprised that we didn't wind up doing a sequel to Virgin. And the reason why is when, after the film was done, and you should ask Boaz this, they signed the guys, or at least I know they signed uh, Lawrence and Steve up for the sequel, but they didn't sign me. And maybe that's because in the story, you never should see me again because I'm the girl you don't want me with. You know, you, he's, they're going to move on to other girls. But I would love to know why they never wound up making a sequel because the Israeli films, they made, you know, tons of sequels um, and from Lemon Popsicle. Lemon Popsicle was the original film that it was from. I've not watched it because I want to sit down and I want to really like relax and enjoy and watch it. But I've been so busy. I've been doing some films. I've actually done shot two films that are going to come out next year. So 
I just haven't had the time, but at a certain point, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to watch it. And then maybe I'll write my review. <laughs> yeah, I'd be very curious to get your take, to get Karen's take on the original Karen, yeah. who wasn't Karen in that film. Um, I do know that they did a shot for shot thing because I know that there was a shot that they showed me. It was us at the house, I think. We were at the house and they did a shot at the house when Karen was crying and she sat. And so they showed me that shot. And so when we did Virgin and I, I saw that shot again, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. They they did a lot of the similar angles and shots that they did Pop, Lemon Popsicle with. I knew that, but um, yeah, it'll be, it would be interesting. I, I will definitely, maybe over the Christmas vacation, I'll, I'll look at it and then I'll, or Thanksgiving, you know, I'll uh, check it out and then put my review there. So. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, Better Off Dead? I mean, that was such a favorite of mine growing up. I, I think I was just a little too young to see last, or it might have been because Last American Virgin was rated R. But right. uh, I caught uh, Better Off Dead probably a hundred times on cable. Well, it's funny you say that you, you were too young to maybe see Last American Virgin because what I found so interesting, there were so many 12-year-olds who were watching Virgin. <laughs> I found this out later. I was like, what was your mother doing during that time? It was kind of funny. Um, so, yeah, Virgin didn't get a, 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 its own very young audience, but uh, I guess it's because, you know, everyone had VHS at that time. We didn't have that for a while, and then people got to watch movies at home, which was, Probably mind-bending for a lot of uh, preteens. Better Off Dead was such a glorious film. I, it was. I'd have to say, if I can be remembered for a film, it would probably be Better Off Dead. Although I do love Virgin, and I like the fact that my work is so different, and so many people would be like, "Wait, that's the same person," which I love, and I've I've always been attracted to interesting roles, but um. And after that, I liked about that film. First of all, it was one of the first films I've done, which I would actually have gone and seen during that time. Because, I mean, I, I obviously, you know, as a young actress, you didn't get scripts. There wasn't a lot of comedy for young people. There wasn't a lot of comedy. And 16 Candles, I don't even know if it came out then. Like, it came out before that after. But, I don't know, it was one of those films like, I was, would love to have done comedy, and I was doing all this drama, and so when Better Off Dead, when I got the script, it was wonderful. Like, I was just so like, happy. Like, I was like, I will actually see this movie, even if I don't get this. That was my first reaction. And then I remember reading it, and I thought, wait a minute, where's the, the truth nudity? Where's the violence? Where's the... I remember reading it and thinking, wait, did I miss something? I must have missed something. Because every film, you know, for a young teen, had something somewhat demeaning or something, you know, like somewhat, oh, really, are we going to do this again? Or victimization. And I was fully aware of this as a young woman, um, but then again, I was an actress, so I loved playing all these different roles. I mean, as an actress, I I love the challenge, and I and you, you when you're an actress, you want to play all kinds of characters. But there's the part of you that's the audience, you know, says, oh, my gosh, can we just watch something different? And so when I got better off dead, it was hilarious. And so what I found really, really awesome about it was that not only did I find it hilarious, but David Acton's style. And, I mean, John was up and coming at the time. He, you know, he, so we, it wasn't that he was, like, famous, famous, um, but, we were, it was so, like, the people who got involved in the film 
they got some mean people in that, that film. And I was just so happy that, that other people found it as funny as I did. Um, people were just, just wanted to be a part of it. They like, they didn't even care. Like I knew like there were so many people just, can we just be in, in like the background? You know, they, they were just so excited to be in this film. So in answer to your question, okay. Better off dead was such a, 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 a groundbreaking film in another way, because it also started the whole Nickelodeon sense of humor. Because Danny Schneider, who, who tortures me in the film, and I love Danny. I just, he's so funny, such a sweetheart, what a great guy. And he wound up starting Schneider's Bakery at Nickelodeon and doing live action shows like The Amanda Show and iCarly and Zoe 101 and all of that humor. So, I mean, not that it started only with Better Off Dead, I mean, but Danny brought that humor also to Better Off Dead. And then Savage Steve wrote and directed it. And so it, it sort of got it um, pat on the back, you know, like Nickelodeon sort of cemented that kind of humor, which is sweet, but funny, self-effacing characters, animation, and it's, it's upbeat. I mean, in that case, it's just like suicide. And I wouldn't say made it funny, but made it quirky. And bizarre. I don't, maybe that's the wrong way to put it, but it was just a great, it, it was a great film for many reasons. It opened the door to offbeat humor that was fun and funny and endearing. I have to say there was a, there's a sweetness in Better Off Dead that you don't see in every film. So that's why I'm just so excited and proud that I was in it. I've always been fascinated by the whole idea that one of the films that you made might not have ever have seen the light of day, which then when it did come out, ended up being a smash hit. When did you get involved with Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? What year was that? Do you remember? Ah, uh, well, 89, it came out. So I'm thinking maybe 88, 89. I'm think I forgot. If we, and maybe it was 80. It's always maybe the year before 88. Perhaps we did it. Bill and Ted's such an interesting film from the standpoint that it was a sweet film, but I don't think anybody anticipated it being huge and it being the kind of film that people would, when they relate, when they talk about the eighties, they bring that film up. Um, like, and, and I, I look at it as sort of it's the bookend of the eighties because it came out in 89 to, uh, fast times, uh, Sean Penn's character, because Keanu brought the dude back, the surfer kind of voice and everything that um, uh, Sean Penn started in Fast Times. I forgot the name of his character, Savelli or something. Spicoli, there you go, Spicoli. So I saw that as like the beginning and end of the era of that kind of character, but yet we associate that so much with the 80s, that you know, dude is righteous and stuff, and the language. And we really want to take the 80s and give it something to identify with, you know, like big hair, totally excellent, the vernacular is so specific, and it's fun, and it, and it was an upbeat time and high energy and colorful and so it, it's a fun generation or genre, I don't know, genre, 80 genre to visit. Um, it's specific. And I think the other thing somebody had mentioned to me was what was so great about Bill and Ted's is if they were the guys you wanted to hang out with. If you could pick two guys from the 80s who you'd want to hang with, them, those were the guys, <laughs> you know. And I was so lucky to audition, uh, to play opposite Keanu because all the films he did afterwards were so serious. And so 
to me, I was like, oh my gosh, I get to do the film that's really fun. And he's like totally adorable. So I felt really like, yeah, I get cute Keanu. Like, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure if he's cute in every film he does, but I get the one that shows the cutie, you know, the endearment, the sweetie, the, I don't know, the, the, the funnier side. So um, I hope they do a Bill and Ted's three. I heard they did, they were into it. And I, they had mentioned that they wanted uh, Kimberly uh, LaBelle and, and I to be in it. And I don't know what's holding them up. You know, well, I, I, I'm so sorry to say that to the fans because I wish that I could say, hey, it's happening. Believe me, if I find out, everyone's going to find out. I'm going to let everybody know because I love that. It was a really fun film and fun character. I love playing a princess, talking with an English accent and being totally righteous and, and playing instruments that I didn't know how to play, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah, it was very fun. Yeah, I, was, I was curious why you weren't back for the sequel. Believe me, I was curious too. In fact, everyone, we're always wondering what happened. Um, the guys wanted us, and as I had heard, the director wanted to go this way. And I think it perhaps was to keep the guys being free guys. Like, they don't have just one babe, real babes. So, like, they could have many different babes. Um, the weird part was that we were the exact same princesses with similar kind of looks. I mean, it was so strange. We couldn't understand it. And we really wanted those roles, but for some reason, they just didn't want it to happen. So that'll be, that's like one of the mysteries. Maybe someday someone will fess up and say, I don't know, maybe somebody, who knows, will find out the real story. <laughs> yeah, that movie, it's always a strange one to me because it feels, there's a lot of elements in there where I'm just like, this feels like Alex Winter's humor, but mm. then it's not 100%. And I think right. if it was 100%, it would have been fantastic. Yeah. But since it's only about, 70 80 percent it's just like ah it's so close to being great but it just never makes it there yeah well you know uh, i'll tell you one thing about that film is that now people show that film in school in public schools they'll show that film which because of history and they'll try to get the kids excited by using it to me that's awesome because the next generation will know about it and uh you know, what can be better? I mean, they're learning about like loving history. So even though it may at a certain point get like, not sort of like pedantic, like, are we back? You know, why are we, you know, bringing up these rules and sort of a school thing? It is actually engaging kids and we can use it as sort of a, a kickstarter to getting kids interested in history. So, you know, you never know how you drop a, a, a drop of water in a pond and you never know where it's going to hit where it's going to influence. So we'll see. Maybe in the future, kids will be little Bill and Ted's going out for Halloween. You know? You've got your book out and you've already put out the one book. Are you self-publishing these or are they coming out through a publisher? Yes, uh, I am self-published. Well, I'm self-publishing the first one. I'm not sure about the second one, but I'm thinking I would like to self-publish. And the reason why is because if I do self-publish, I then have control of the, of anything that happens to the, to the book. Um, I can, I can sell it anywhere. And then eventually if I do wind up doing three books, I can then, I could then take the, all three and go to a publisher and say, here, do you want to send them as a set? But it used to be where you could only get a book out through a publisher. But now the problem is, you know, if you go through a publisher, well then you're not, it's almost like them holding on to it. So if you want to send it somewhere, they can say no. And I, and I think that's really the kind of tricky part is that maybe you'll get distribution, big distribution. Maybe you won't. Maybe they're going to hold on to it or they're going to want to change something. And it's going to be, they're going to hold on it for so long that it's going to lose its momentum. So 
there is something to be said about coming out with things when it's timely. And my first book did really well, but at the same time, you know, it, it did well because I, it's just word of mouth and people who understand me. I mean, you're not going to get, a, you know, a, a, maybe a 20 year old right now to buy that book because they don't know who I am. I'm not on something. Um, I've got two books, uh, sorry, two films coming out. Maybe if they see those films, they'll go, Oh, I really want to know her history and what's going on. I don't know how old you are, but our generation of people who know what I've done, they're going to appreciate it the most. And I think that's really all that matters. I don't care if everybody gets it. Only the people who get it, get it, (laughs) who really get it, you know? Uh, And that makes, I think really cool to be a cult, uh, cult, I see myself as a cult actress. It's that you do things that are a little risque, a little maverick, and a little different that make people that people remember because you were bold and you took a stand and you did something nobody else maybe would do. Speaking of that, I just done these two films. One of them is um, a film called uh, Waking Nightmare, and the girl who is in it is uh, who plays my daughter is um, Shelley Regner, and she was one of the she's one of the Bellas in Pitch Perfect. And uh, my husband is uh, Jamison uh, Newlander, and he um, is wonderful. He was in Lost Boys, and. Uh, I think uh, and David Naughton is in it as well, um, if you remember David Naughton, Dr. Pepper, and uh, Werewolf of London. And um, so uh, this is a, a, a film, it's like a horror film, um, and I'm not sure if it's going to go to Netflix or how they want to get distributed, but I have a very juicy part, and it's a big part. And um, if you've seen my films, again, this is going to be a role you've never seen me uh, act in. It's very cool, very different. Uh, and then this other film I did was... Um, it's called The Final Interview for a director named Fred Vogel, and that will be coming out also next year. The Final Interview is about the last interview before a serial killer uh, goes to the electric chair, and I play an ex-wife of the gentleman who's interviewing him. He's like a journalist, and I'm giving – so I'm so in the booth, and I'm like talking to the – you know, trying to make the interview go smoothly, um, but my husband – is uh, not making it go smoothly. So anyway, it's, but it's a, it's there. It's like a psychological thriller, and that film I think is going to be going to the film festival circuit. So if you hear of the final interview, keep your ear out for it because that it would probably be in selective theaters across the country. You know that it's going to play, and then also so my book will come out February 11th. And if you want to contact me, then you just go to my Facebook account. Got full. So the thing is, if you friend me on Facebook, you'll see a picture of me from Better Off Dead that's black and white. But if you friend me, then you're going to just kind of be on a list. And I, if people leave, then I'll, I'll put you on. Um, but you may, in the meantime, want to go to Diane Franklin 80 on Twitter, Diane Franklin 80. And that, you, you know, if I announce the, uh, you know, my book, that'll be there. And then also, if you go to Instagram and you go to Diane to be with you, D-I-A-N-E to be with you because I thought it was funny. <laughs> um, and so uh, that's my Instagram. Um, and so you'd, you'll find out like when my book comes out, I also post like pictures from Virgin and, and Better Off Dead and Terrorvision and Amityville and like occasionally different things that are going on. And then my daughter is also a filmmaker and her name is Olivia De Laurentiis. And yes, it's similar to Dina, right? Um, distantly related. She is an amazing filmmaker and she does comedy. And so I will occasionally do 
parts in her films. Um, she does everything from, she's got films and she's got sketches and you can check her work out at oliviadelorentis.com. But if you are friend, you know, like if you're on my Twitter account, you'll, I, I post things like she's part of this second city comedy, uh, show called after dark with julian clark and she does sketches for them and um she also does the sketches through this she and her friend uh, are barely legal comedy so if you look these things up you'll see her and she is 20 and she's beautiful and she i love her <laughs> she's awesome and then uh and she writes directs edits uh her own stuff um so that's amazing and, and then I have a son too, but he's, in, uh, he's a musician. He plays the upright bass, um, and he is beautiful and gorgeous and wonderful. Um, but, uh, he's more shy. So I don't get the, I don't talk about him as much. And then of course I am married. I have a husband that, you know, that is also something that, that happened. And, uh, um, and my husband, he writes for uh, Nickelodeon. He's a, um, a writer. He writes, uh, animation and, um, uh, he's, he's been writing for his whole life, but that's just, uh, one of the things. So, uh, and then we have lots of animals. That's basically my, my world. There's so many things going on, but, uh, uh, amidst all of this, but, um, that's my little background. Well, terrific. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful talking with you. Oh, good. I hope I haven't talked your ear off. Are you ready for the sex girls? The hot, hot, lead, hot, big, hot girls. Are you ready for the sex girls? The right, right, ultra vital, nice, nice girls. They play pool in your house and take off their own clothes. They can talk about love because they know where it goes. They are women without any faults. Are you ready for the pony girls? The ride, ride, fast, ride pony girls. Are you ready for the lonely girls? The sad, sad, old, sad, lonely back and we're talking about the lemon popsicle film so as we've talked about a little bit before lemon popsicle has spawned a raft of sequels now i will admit i only got a chance to see one two three four of the sequels i stopped after baby love and i didn't get to the up your anchor film which kind of sounds almost like a carry-on film or something but from what I remember us talking about when we were in Philadelphia last time, Warren, it's kind of uh, diminishing returns after a certain point of this. Yeah, I mean, Baby Love already starts being a little, you know, it's it's not quite as good. Uh, Up Your Anchor is, is it's pretty bad. <laughs> Young Love and Summertime Blues are, are uh, borderline unwatchable. They're, they're bad. They're just bad. Uh, and then the last one, which was not really a sequel, it's sort of like a... You know, the one from 2001, I don't even know what it is. If it's a sequel, if it's a remake, if it's, a, it's, 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 that's completely unnecessary. Well, from what Zach Inouye was saying, it sounds like it was kind of an attempt at a reboot slash TV series and that it just never got picked up. So they tried to hack it together into a feature length film. And as far as I know, it's not available with English subtitles any place. Like the version that I have of it had, it almost seemed like it was taped off of television because it, it, there's like stuff going on in the bottom of the frame and just all this weird stuff is happening. So it just doesn't even seem like 
a, a real movie whatsoever. And at that point, seeing some of these guys come back and play these like older versions slash not really them <laughs> kind of characters was kind of a strange thing, but it was weird. But yeah, there are moments in some of the other ones where I was genuinely having a good time. I mean, going steady in hot bubblegum, I have to say, had a lot of good moments. And then we were talking before we started recording about Private Popsicle and just how the dubbing seems to change a lot of the jokes <laughs> when it comes to that particular movie. Yeah, Private Popsicle is a lot of... Uh... Uh, ethnic humor that it's very it really relates to Israel and Israeli culture especially because they're in the army uh, I have not seen the dubbing but I could see why that would be a little difficult to translate however I will say I think as far as a pure comedy I think it's the funniest one Private Popsicle cracks me up I just watched a little bit of it right now before we started and I can't say it starts and I'm laughing it, it's so funny. You know, it starts with one of their shenanigans where uh, it's kind of like Stella in the first film. You know, they have sex. They have sex with uh, with one woman. She's also an immigrant. And then her husband comes home and Sachi is, is having sex with her. And her husband comes home and he lays down next to her and he's totally drunk. And she keeps telling her husband and her husband sees it and he's kind of like, what the hell is going on? And she just tells him, don't worry, you're dreaming. Nothing is happening. And Saki is looking at him and it's just like, I'm not even here. I'm waiting for the bus. He's having sex with her and he's just kind of, you know, don't worry, you're going to wake up. I'm not even going to be here. The way Tzachi does it is so funny. That movie really cracks me up. Um, and it's also, again, a little more, it's not very personal, but it's, it's a little more personal because of the, of the experiences, because that kind of goes back to uh, the army service and all these guys and, and what they went through in the army. So they brought up their own kind of stories from the army. So basically, what happened was the first, uh, the first line popsicle came out. It became, uh, one of the biggest movies ever in Israel. At that time, one out of every three people in the country saw it. Um, I think the country had about three million people at the time and something like a million point two tickets were sold for that, for the film. So it was a huge success and they ended up uh, going to the Berlin Film Festival, did really well at the Berlin Film Festival. And started selling around the world, sold to Germany, sold to Japan. In both these places, it became huge. Uh, I think in Japan, it actually grew, uh, made more than Greece and Saturday Night Fever at that point. Really, uh, you know, started screened all over Europe. Some places it did better, some not. Uh, like it didn't really do very well in England or in France or Italy, but, uh, you know, it played in like Spain, in Belgium, like many, 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 it played in dozens of countries. And then a German producer called Sam, Sam Weinberg came in and started, basically came in to produce more movies with them. And they produced Going Steady, the second one. And again, big success. And then they started making the co-productions a little more uh, visible in, term, in the sense that Germans... Uh, Germany wanted certain things, you know, they, they needed the sex to be there, they needed a certain type of jokes, uh, they needed German act actors or actresses. So starting with Hot Bubblegum, with the third one, you also see uh, German actresses coming in, specifically in Hot Bubblegum, it's uh, Sibyl Rauch, Sibyl Rauch, who's, uh, who is like a sort of like blonde bombshell German actress. Oh, was that Benzie's cousin? Yes. Holy shit. <laughs> Yeah. So she comes in 
And then by the time you get to Private Popsicle, even the good girls, they're not Israeli anymore. They're German actresses who are dubbed into Hebrew. Uh, like the lead actress in Private Popsicle is German. Baby Love, you have Dolly Dollar, who, uh, who's, you know, uh, an up your anchor. But by the time you get to up your anchor, they're hiding any Hebrew. There's no Hebrew, like, around the film. It's completely a German film at that point. Uh, and it's made so that it could be dubbed. Basically, Private Popsicle, the army one, was also the last one that Boas directed. The Germans started taking more control. Uh, Canon, like Golan and Globus, didn't really care as much. It became a machine. Uh, Boas was living in the United States, working for Canon. Uh, and with Baby Love, they took another director, an Israeli director named Don, Don Wolman, Don Wolman, who was really known for, uh, art films. He did a lot of, uh, you know, very personal artistic movies. He also made a film called Made in Sweden with Christina Lindbergh. Generally, he was a very like sensitive art house director, and they brought him in to do Plum Popsicle 5, Baby Love. But Boaz was still very much involved. They were on the phone every day. Uh, Boaz was advising. They spoke about everything. Uh, Boaz really, Boaz had a hard time giving control over the movie because the series was so personal for him. But they made Baby Love. It's a little different. I don't know if you noticed that, Mike, but, uh, it seems a little different than the rest of the series. It, it almost seems a little more American in the way it's designed and in the way it's shot. It kind of reminds me of the Beach Party movies of like Frankie and Annette more than the Lemon Popsicle movie in a way. Uh, in the way it's designed, at least, and looks. Uh, and then by the time they made Up Your Anchor, uh, everybody was out. Boz was completely out. Dan Volman, the director who made Baby Love, uh, stayed on for Up Your Anchor. Uh, the movie was about... The three guys minus minus Momo. What happened was that Jonathan uh, Jonathan Segal, who played Momo, didn't want to be in it, so they took the guy who played Foike, Victor, and they made him the third one. So it was uh, Bensi, Yudale, and Foike, and they become sailors and they go on a boat. They go to work on a on a cruise ship, and so the whole thing takes place on a cruise ship in a way where you can dub it in any language you want and it doesn't betray where it's from. Like, it, it does not look like an Israeli in any way. They became more and more German in their in their character and they really became more for the international audience and less for Israel. Young Love, Seven, and Summertime Blues, the eighth Lemon Popsicle, were directed by Austrians. The, the eighth one, Summertime Blues, never... Up until a few years ago, when they released the box set, has never even been released commercially in Israel. It does not have any, a Hebrew soundtrack at all. Like, there's no, I watch it in German. It, it only exists in German. And it's so crazy that there is a line. It's like a 1950s movie. They're all in like their late 30s. It, it, it's not good. And there's actually a line there where somebody's dancing and like doing a bad move and, and somebody else saying, look, he thinks he's John Travolta. And you're like, this is the 1950s. Oh my Makes God. no sense. But that's what happened. It was just, it became so huge and so successful all over the world. And at some point, like almost every genre, it became a caricature of itself. 
the Summertime Blues was 1988, so 10 years after the first one. I mean, even with Baby Love, I started to see that the actors were growing up. You know, I mean, it, it was only five years after, so I can't imagine 10 years after how these guys looked. It must have been like when the those little rascals would get too old and they're just on the, those last legs before they get replaced by the next little rascal. It's just like, oh man, you know, the Alfalfa's voice had changed, you know, he's got a mustache now. It's just like, come on, let's get some new people in here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's really what happened. It went from being a, an extremely personal series to just being softcore comedies. Um, oh, yeah, and Private Popsicle, the army one, also has a, a mini-sequel just with Udale and uh, and the sergeant. It, and, you know, it's kind of like it's a Lemon Popsicle sequel that's not Lemon Popsicle. It was that successful. And it's got a, it's, it also has a great title. It's called Private Maneuvers. Or in Hebrew, Sababa, which is, has no relation to the word to the words private maneuvers, but it's that's fine. Well, and we were talking a little bit before we started recording, as far as that the drill sergeant in the uh, army one, they make him into this Indian guy. Like I wasn't sure at first, but then like as he keeps talking, and like at one point, I I think he even like you know praises Ganesh or something. It was just like. This guy doesn't look Indian, but they gave him an Indian accent, and they made him this weird Indian stereotype. But you were saying that in the original, he's not necessarily supposed to be Indian. Uh, no. No, he's weird. definitely, you know, uh, a, an ethnic caricature. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think he's Persian, but he's not, but he's, he's not Indian at all. <laughs> no, there, there are, I, I highly doubt that there are many Indian, like, army sergeants in israel one thing we were talking about um a little earlier was um because i had read and please correct me if i'm wrong but i've read online that um there were there were plans like if last american version had been like a huge success like they were hoping it'd be that it would have it would be gat sequels just like lemon popsicle did and of course obviously that never came to fruition and it's really fascinating to me that a film like lemon popsicle has all of these sequels because uh you know when you think of like american comedies that have like a lot of sequels they're they're usually really pretty lighthearted and so it's really i don't know it's cool to me that something that had such serious you know had like serious issues that were handled really appropriately um, begat just spawned an insane amount of sequels. I mean, I'm I'm trying to you know because I think the what Mike we were talking about like American Pie, Porky's had a few sequels. Um, yeah, you know, I don't know if we count National Lampoons. That's not really quite the same thing. Um, I don't know. It just seems it seems a little unprecedented in American cinema, at least off the top of my head. My, you know, my. Which which is why I actually feel like if I had to compare it to any series, it would be the Beach Party movies. I think it carries a similar trajectory. Movies are very different, of course, but it's got a similar trajectory as a series to uh, the Beach Party movies, where they start. You know, when you watch Beach Black and Bingo, it's it's like a really you see that a lot of like care has been put into it, and by the time you get to How to Stuff a Wild Bikini, it's essentially. A caricature of of Beach Black and Bingo, you know, it's a, it's a shadow of what it used to be. God, that's that's a beautiful analogy. And Mike, if you ever do a beach party series episode, you should have me and Oren on there because I actually I love the beach party movie. <laughs> I love them. 
I went through a period a couple of years ago where I was trying to watch as many of those as I could and tried to stay clear of the non-canon ones, you know, because they were so popular that they spawned, you know, other beach movies. And I was just like, no, no, no. I just want the ones that kind of, you know, it didn't have to be Frankie and Annette necessarily the whole time, but I wanted that that um, series. You know, I didn't want the the weird offshoots necessarily. For me, with the Frankie and Annette films, it's really interesting because I, I, I found that the key to those movies to know what you're in for is the opening song. The bigger the production of the opening song, the better the movie is going to be. And you really mm. see that, again, from Peach Blanc and Bingo to How to Stop a Wild Bikini. Like in How to Stop a Wild Bikini, the opening song is ridiculous. You're just, <laughs> and not only is it not great, but the production value is like non-existent. And you know, that's what what's happening with Lemon Popsicle. The production value, it's such a guaranteed moneymaker that the production value just drops because you don't, you don't need to invest anymore. Uh, but at some point it's, it just stops being, being a, a moneymaker anywhere because they really just are not good anymore. And it's, you know, the interesting thing uh, that I just thought about it when I was growing up and watching these movies, and knowing these movies and everybody talking about them, there's a thing in Israel in general where popular films and films that are more geared towards the mainstream tend to be looked down upon. Uh, definitely at that, at that period when I was growing up critically. So the audience may love these movies, but critically and in terms of the history of Israeli cinema, people kind of try to sweep them under the rug a little bit as a, an obscurity as a curiosity, like this is not really important. And when I was growing up, the Lemon Popsicle was beyond the fact that we loved it to watch it. It was kind of a joke, the fact that it was so big in Germany. Because for us, uh, definitely as kids, Germany seemed like uh, they had all this like really sleazy, cheesy softcore porn. Uh, we would get the cable channel RTL and they had this show called Tutti Frutti, which was, <laughs> you know, they just had insane things on TV. And, and then you take Lemon Popsicle and you sort of like connect it to that type of entertainment and it becomes kind of a joke because you're like, okay, so these, these must be really bad. But the more I, uh, you know, as I grew up and the more I researched and the more I read about it, I realized, that is not only is it not the case, but as a series of movies, this is these are they're the most successful Israeli movies ever made, and probably ever that ever will be made. I mean, the, their international success is unparalleled by anything that ever came out of Israel. It was also the first one was also nominated for a Golden Globe, by the way, and they're really important to the history of Israeli cinema. Uh, you know, especially the first ones, and and what happened to them as a as a franchise, I mean, when when did we, you know, when what what's another Israeli movie franchise that like took over the world? Japan? It's crazy. You know, I was just uh, for shits and giggles. I was looking up the American Pie series because that's the only thing that I can think of where it kind of has some parallels. I won't say that the first one has nearly the punch that Lemon Popsicle had, but it's had the legs to stick around for ten years. 
and uh, again with the diminishing returns. But I would have to say that the diminishing re- returns kind of started with American Pie 2 and then just kind of <laughs> got worse from there. They've had eight of those films. I had no idea because I knew that they were doing like offshoots, you know, kind of direct to cable or direct to DVD or now direct to streaming offshoots. But um, I knew about Bandcamp and I knew about the Ma- Naked Mile. But they have one called Beta House and The Book of Love that I've never even heard of before. Last one was 2009, and it's like, wow. So that that series just kept crawling along. And Eugene Levy seems to be the only person that was in all uh, eight of those. (laughs) Oh, my God. by the end, it's just a whole new group of kids. But for some reason, Eugene Levy is still hanging around. It, does somebody have blackmail on him? I mean, he's a really good actor. Like, why? <laughs> he is, but he's been in some really bad stuff. Oh, I, I know. Actually, speaking of growing up with cable TV, I, I have seen Armed and Dangerous way more than I ever wanted to. I swear, there was like a period of time where HBO showed that film nonstop. That and Rat Boy with Sandra Locke. Like, there's. Oh, yeah. wow. So I've seen this, this as, as a latchkey kid. I've seen those films a lot. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's. Yeah, I'm, I'm really fascinated by the whole beach party comparison. Like that, it, it does make it does make sense that it's you know. That's that's what came to my mind, you know, just in terms of. But it's also like a film series that I that I love. So it's it's uh, it's also the first time in Israel. I'm not sure it's related to the beach party thing, but uh, I, it's definitely a part of you know. It might be part of why it, it was so successful in Israel. Um, it's the first time where you had a, a movie about teenagers that wasn't somehow related to the political state of Israel in terms of that, you know, didn't have some sort of like a, a Zionist message or, you know, they don't go to the army. They they do later, but they but it's not about that. It's just about kids wanting to get laid. And it's like about t- teenagers, sort of like hedonism and like, teenagers and and that didn't really exist in israeli cinema before that which also opened up like a window to other movies afterwards uh but i think that that really grabbed people as well to just seeing something like this that makes sense because like I, f- I feel like you could be and explains the international success too because i feel like you you know if as long as you're like a human being with a heart who remembers your teen years or, or, or in fact, maybe are going through them that you could watch Lemon Popsicle and have it, have it really resonate. Cause it doesn't, nothing in that film feels like an adult may, making a judgment call on actions. Cause like even with Nilly, I mean, she's naive. And even at the end when she's basically gone back to Momo, you know, she doesn't seem like, Oh, that bitch. It doesn't seem like anything real ugly. You, you, you feel for her. Cause it's just, well, she's just a kid too. She's making a mistake like everybody does. And, you know, it's, I don't know, it's, you know, I I love that there's no like real hard black and white kind of morals kind of placed on these characters either. I mean, including the abortion, like it's not really, Mm -hmm. it's not portrayed as the most awesome thing in the world because, of course, that's a a rough thing for anybody to go through. But at the same time, it's not, it's not, you know, a demonized thing either. And um, I really would love to see this film get a really like a good legal release in in America. Like, I feel like this film needs a nice Blu-ray like set. Criterion. Yes. Yes. I, I would love this film to be on Criterion. Oh, by the way, also, for you know, we talked about Boaz, who um, 
today's head of production at New Image. Uh, the, the cinematographer of Lemon Popsicle, Adam Greenberg, great cinematographer, uh, Academy Award nominee for shooting Terminator 2. Oh, wow. man. Yeah, if folks aren't familiar with Boaz Davidson's work, I mean, you are, but you just don't know it because he has been behind so many things. Like, you look at his filmography and look at his just his producer credits, not, not even to mention his writer-director credits. He has done so much stuff. It is just insane. He's very prolific. And there's so many things that, that he worked on that, you know, we've even covered here on the show. And it's just like, you know, oh, God, when I had a chance to talk to him, it's like, okay, I really want to be respectful of your time because otherwise I could talk to you for 10 hours about all these movies that you've worked on. It's just it was amazing to look at his body of work. He was great. And was a real, you know, and that's the thing. I mean, he he is signed as producer on all these movies. And at some point he did stop directing, even though he was very prolific as a director. I, I think that maybe he didn't really find himself quite as much as a director in the United States because it's such a different culture in terms of what he deals with. And his movies are uh, very Israeli and very personal. You know, some of the comedies are more like ethnic comedies that are also you know, directly related to where he grew up. But even as a producer, and that's a really important thing, Boaz really is an artist. Uh, and he's a guy who, even when you talk to him, you, you see he's an artist He's not like a suit and tie, like director, not director, producer who is completely detached from, from the artistic side of things. Um, he has a soul of an artist and he's, I, I was the first time I met him. I, I was, I was a little nervous. I was very anxious because he's influenced me so much with his movies and I grew up on them and I really think he's such an incredible director. Uh, and, and he was the sweetest, nicest guy. I mean, we, I interviewed him for a, a documentary that I made as well. And he's, I, I, I love Boaz. I really, really love him. He's, he's just phenomenal. So I was saying before the break that these movies aren't necessarily that easy to find. Like I said, you can find Last American Virgin. I think it might have been streaming on Netflix at one point. I was really surprised to find that, um, going steady is available right now or as at the time of the recording on Amazon prime. Of course, I'm talking about the dub version of going steady. And so many of these, you can find the English dub version. It's really tough to find an English subtitled version of these films. So good luck with that. I, I know there was a Israeli box set that was put out a few years ago where I think that there are English subtitles available on some of these, but some of them have never been subtitled. I, I've mentioned The Party Goes On, but really, you kind of want to shy away from that one, to be honest. You can find some of these dubbed out on YouTube. I'm not one to encourage people to go out and find movies on YouTube, but it is just very difficult to find these movies generally. So good luck with that. But yeah, like you were saying, it would be nice if these had a proper release. At least have the first, what, five or six of these in a box set and maybe have the maybe have the other ones kind of hidden on there as well just for shits and giggles but to have those to have last american virgin all in one place would be a phenomenal thing and i think that really this is one of those series where i can really heartily recommend that people check it out and and track down these movies because there is a lot of stuff to enjoy in these absolutely absolutely i i wish there were more easily available. Uh, the Israeli box set 
It does have subtitles. Um, I think I think probably on all the movies, but they also don't really. They they didn't. It's an unfortunate box set. Uh, in my opinion, they they didn't use good transfers. Like if you look at the German box set, which unfortunately does not have. I'm not sure if it's got English subtitles, but it definitely does not have the Hebrew soundtrack. Much better video quality though than the the, the Israeli box set. But what they did with the Israeli box set, which is uh, very distracting if you try to watch it is that if you try to watch it and you don't speak Hebrew and you need subtitles um, you know we were talking about what what was going on with the soundtracks they instead of uh, they took the movie and instead of translating it and doing subtitles for the translation they took the English dubbing of the movie and, oh. they, tra- and they just transcribed the dubbing now the problem here beyond the fact that it's, you know, not necessarily the best translation, is that the English dubbing has different songs. And it's one of those subtitle tracks where you also have the lyrics of the songs playing. So, but because they transcribed the English dubbing, you would have, like, the wrong songs in the subtitles. So all of a sudden you would have, like... The lyrics are Tutti Frutti in the subtitles, but it would be like a Dale Shannon, you know, it'll be a Runaway by Dale Shannon, and you're sit- sitting there like, what the hell is going on? Uh, it's extremely distracting. Uh, so, the, yeah, I, I don't know that there's an ultimate way of, of watching it, uh, it here, but it is still worth watching either way. From what I understand, some super fan of Lemon Popsicle <laughs> out there actually took the Hebrew soundtrack... <laughs> the proper English subtitles and laid those over the German transfer of the film and then had to, of course, resync everything because I'm sure that there was uh, some issues there with everything lining up and then made kind of the ultimate fan edit of Lemon Popsicle. I don't know if there's anybody that can substantiate that, but, but from what I understand, that, that exists in the world. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it exists. It's it exists. It definitely, uh, it's it's out there. And from what I understand, it was very hard work. Now, if only something like that could be out in the wild, that would be fantastic. I I, I mean, I really think it needs. Uh, I, I've been, you know, it's a, it's kind of a dream of mine to be able to get a print of lemon. I don't know what state the prints that the exist, existing prints are. Uh, I kind of have this dream of bringing a print to the United States and. Uh, Trying to do like some, you know, maybe show it like at like the New Beverly or Cine Family in LA or something like that. Uh, Eli Roth is a big fan of these movies. So I, I was kind of thinking, you know, maybe that's, that could be a way of like publicizing it. But, um, I, 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 I'm done. Like I really would love to do that one day. You mentioned Eli Roth, and I'm I'm really kind of scared because both Boaz and Zaki mentioned to me that Brett Ratner wants to do a remake of it, and it took a lot for me to not actually go "ew" when they said that because <laughs> I can't stand Brett Ratner, and just the idea of him taking that material—I mean, it just seems so. He's just, I think, uh, Heather, you would might agree with me that he seems like a bro hole. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I, I think that's a, a horrible idea on a number of levels. I mean, there's already a remake. 
and it's perfectly fine. And it and the reason that Last American Virgin probably has any real heft to it is because it's Boaz Davidson directing it. And on top of that, like it's a great cast. I just don't enough with the remakes. Just any anybody that is, works at a great and reputable distribution place, work with Oron. You got get a print, remaster it, have him do commentary, get this thing out there like it needs to be. Cause I mean and get and please don't let Brett Ratner or any other just know. <laughs> <laughs> just no my goodness there there are plenty of uh i don't know there, there needs to be more justice in the world where you know money that goes to ratner and that ilk actually go to artists you know who are trying to do something that's very interesting and worthy in this world i feel like you should only remake movies when they were not done right the first time like manhunter <laughs> oh I love Manhunter. I do not like hit Brett Ratner's version of Red no, Dragon. No, no, it was it was fangless. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, I'm, you know, Maltese Falcon. You know, it was done like three times, and but then the third time was a charm. You don't need to do it again. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. ご意見解釈人。おまみとでござる。おまみと。ご意を受け払う気で。なれば。さほにのとって解釈してやろう。これは答えられ。この呪術を見て何に乗ろうとだ。知らん。全く身に負えない。この声。何やつか。あんたさえよかったらどなたしておくれこれは腹を切るために着用せ装束にあらず今日ただいまより冥府魔道に銀とする我らをやくの門出の腹入れござ<笑> That's right. If you don't speak Japanese, we'll be back next week with a discussion of the Lone Wolf and Cub films. Before we go, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Heather and Oren. Heather, what has been keeping you out of the bars lately? (laughs) Well, um, in the month of October, I had the good fortune to get to interview David Jay, the great musician from Bajas and Love and Rockets, as well as um, some amazing solo work for uh, Diabolique. And I actually have to 
take a brief aside and thank uh, your former co-host, Rob St. Mary, because Rob is basically the one that helped line that up for me. So I got to interview one of my heroes, which was awesome. And, and speaking of Diabolique, I just recently was named their new music and culture editor, uh, which is insane. And um, I have some amazing company over there. So I'm looking forward to uh, help creating and steering many great and groovy things uh, for 2017. That is fantastic. Congratulations on that. Diabolic is doing some amazing work, so I'm really glad that you're working with them. Me too. <laughs> and Oren, you know, last time we spoke was possibly one of the best and worst days in America lately. The, uh, the worst part was the election of Donald Trump by Russian hackers, and the best was the release of The Frontier on VOD. So what has been the latest with you, sir? <laughs> Sorry, that was, that, was, that was quite a day. Yes. Yeah, it sure quite, was. Quite a, and you oh. can hear that interview over at projection-booth.com where we're all kind of slowly losing our minds as we uh, are getting election results in as the uh, interview is going on. I think it's an interesting interview because I feel like none of us is completely lucid because we're talking about the movie and we're looking at like the results at the same time. And we're all right. just fading away throughout the interview. <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah, my film, The Frontier, uh, when we did that interview, came out on VOD. Um, it is a, uh, for those who uh, didn't hear that one, it's a film noir set in the 1970s, uh, starring Jocelyn Donahue, Kayla Lynch, and Jim Beaver, shot on uh, film on Super 16 millimeter. It's released, it was released by Kino Lorber, and we've actually been, since then, uh, continuing the rollout last week, it came out on Blu-ray and DVD in a really cool special feature, special edition. We uh, we have a, an audio commentary by myself and uh, Webb Wilcoxon, my co-writer, who was here on the podcast as well, and moderated by Elric Kane. Uh, there's some interviews with the cast, some great behind-the-scenes footage shot on uh, Super 8 millimeter. Uh, and it is also now available on Netflix. So there is absolutely no excuse not to watch it. It is highly, highly recommended. I, I would say that if folks haven't seen The Frontier yet, they go out and check it out right now because it is uh, a really terrific film. And you definitely should be proud of that one. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, thank you guys for coming on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and over to Patreon, where you can donate. Uh, every donation, every rating, and every review helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
They call her name at 7.30 I pace around the parking lot And I walk down to buy her flowers And sell some gifts that I got Can't you see enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.